VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, February the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. Well, I hope the weather's treating you well where you are this morning here in the city of St. John's. Snow gently falling, but underneath that nice fresh white layer of snow is your standard Avalon Peninsula ice and slush. I dumped myself this morning, so I'm a bit wet, <laughs> but away we go. Anyway, Growlers lose last night to Adirondack 4-2 down at Mary Brown Center. They haven't lost many games on home ice this year. Still second overall in the ECHL, so they're flying. And the Rogues in Ontario for their first road trip of the year. They come back next week to play Sudbury in a three-game set. All right, so I guess it's winter carnival season. I heard a story this morning that starting on the 17th of February is Cornerbrook's 50th annual winter carnival. So apparently one of the uh, residents of Cornerbrook, they were in Quebec with a bunch of friends uh, attending the Quebec Winter Carnival, which is amazing if you've ever been there. And of course, their mascot, Bonhomme, and the International Pee Wee Hockey Tournament, uh, but he came back and said, you know, we should be able to replicate that kind of carnival here. Maybe on a smaller scale, you know, for a day or a weekend at Marble. And now, 50 years later, here they are kicking it off next week. So that's pretty cool stuff. This one gets soft spot in my heart. So on this date in 1895, a fellow named William, William Morgan presented a new sport called Mignette or Mintonette at Springfield College in Massachusetts, later became known as volleyball. So volleyball is old as 1895. And this is a good one. So 25 years ago today, the first annual Random Acts of Kindness Week began. So this lady named Ann Herbert, she was sitting casually at a Sausalito Cafe in the 1980s, and she had this idea, wrote it down on a napkin. Then she wrote a book about it in 1991 for ages 7 and up, and now the second week of February, ever since, is the Random Acts of Kindness Week. And with all that's going around, if you're lucky enough to be on the receiving end of a Random Act of Kindness, I'm sure it will go over gangbusters. All right. So when we talk about numbers as big as $196 billion, and that's the new 10-year plan put forward by Prime Minister Trudeau, to appease the, uh, the demands of the territorial leaders and provincial premiers for an increase in health care transfer spending. It's not what they wanted. And once again, sort of a mixed bag of reaction across the country as whether or not it's going far enough, whether or not the provinces are, have the ability to be nimble and do what they need in their own province to attend to the health care shortages and gaps. Okay. So there's an immediate $2 billion, and we get some $27 million of that. We get about $100 million up front, is my understanding. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around all the details here. But when the federal government says there's key areas, whether it be to expand family health services, especially in rural and remote areas, and that'll go over very well in this province because you and I hear the stories all the time. I mean, there's rallies and protests in different communities about the fact that there's a diversion from their emergency room or their hospital is closed or they've lost their doctor or whatever the case may be. And we're happy to share your stories here this morning. So they talk about that and also modernizing with the standardized digital health database, which we've got a lot of work to do in this province, given we've just gone through a hack of. Then it's the vagaries of supporting healthcare workers, reducing backlogs, and important stuff like attending to quality mental health and substance 
misused. So in this province, I was spoke with Minister of Health Tom Osborne yesterday on a variety of things, including this pot of money and how we're going to focus the spend, and also things like virtual care and the cap on it and the cap on cataract procedures and not really much in the way of new information forthcoming. But how is the balancing act going to be struck? Because the immediacy of need is quite obvious. You know, whether it be with more healthcare workers, whatever the case may be, getting some of these clinics and emergency rooms and hospitals up and running to full capacity. So that real present need today, of course, has to get some attention from government and has been getting some. Whether or not we're any further ahead remains to be seen and certainly depends on where you live in the province. But how do we talk about trying to address the needs today also in an effort to reduce health care costs and interaction with the health care system in the future. A lot of that has been investigated, evaluated, and written about in the Health Accord, which is a pretty important document, which I have read. And so when we talk about long-term, the vision for transforming health care, which has to happen, and I think everyone across the country realizes that, the pandemic has shone a very bright light on the system. But let's get to some of the breakdown that we hear from whether it be Dr. Parfrey or Sister Elizabeth Davis and the work they did with all their subcommittees for the Health Accord. Here's how... Here's the breakdown as they tell the, the tale. The social and economic environmental factors, so the social determinants of health, that, co- that compiles some 60% of health outcomes. The actual healthcare system itself accounts for 25%, and a person's genetics makes up for the final 15 of the overall cost. So when we understand those numbers, I wonder how they will deal with it. Just give some uh, thought to this one. In the last four decades, healthcare spending in this province has increased by 232%, and the positive healthcare outcomes have not been commensurate with that. They just haven't. So it always it hasn't always been simply about money. When you compare a 232% increase in healthcare spending, social spending has only increased by 6%. The population hasn't changed a great deal. So how the government is going to try to get this right and strike that appropriate or most impactful balancing act, I'm not really sure. Because people are yelling at the top of their lungs, and justifiably so, about their inability to get the care they need where they live. So how do you deal with that? Because this money sounds like huge money. The new money in this additional healthcare transfer is about $46 billion. So it's happy enough to use the $196 billion, but the reality is $46 billion is the new money to be spread around the country. So you would seem to think that when we talk about this system as a whole, some attention to those social determinants of health probably legitimately belong at the top of the pile. And that's going to be a tough sell politically. Because if those have investments in social programs don't change the water on the beans in the short term, because people still have their needs today. And there's a lot of those, regardless of where you are in the province, and it happens right here in the city, and even worse, obviously, elsewhere, outside the Northeast Avalon. But how do we get it right to ensure that the long-term vision of reducing the amount of money we have to spend on healthcare, because we're doing more to keep people healthy, as opposed to simply treat them when they're sick. So that's a lot to that, and there's something we can talk about. Whatever angle you're interested in, let's go. Okay, so Memorial University. The strike continues, and I said yesterday that I think the Faculty Association and the Students' Union are certainly winning the PR battle, and that's important because they'll recognize the public outcry. 
in the negotiating setting. And so that may indeed bring some resolution favoring one side or another. But, you know, more and more stories now about some heated encounters on the picket lines. Let's hope that does not continue. And you wonder aloud what the uh, government's role needs to be very quickly, because if we can attend to some things with amendments of legislation, let's do that. Because if the province is able to get all the members of the House of Assembly back in Confederation Building to deal with the essential services tag for private ambulance operators, which was important, even though that tale has not been fully told either, because I don't think there's an essential service agreement between the Teamsters Union and the operator, in this case, Fewer's Ambulance Services. But... I'd like to hear from students. We've heard from the Faculty Association. We've heard from the university. We've heard from some students. But I'm getting a load of emails from Memorial University students who are impacted by the strike. And because they know that their representative body, the student union, is in support of the Faculty Association, they seem hesitant to speak out in opposition to what the union thinks and to say that, you know, it might come across as selfish, but hey, looking out for number one and your your deadlines or timelines for graduation, the plans you have for the future, if we lose this semester, that could be terrible for a lot of students. So we know that the nursing students were able to go back to their clinical placements, and some students have been, I'll call it, brave enough to speak to the media, saying, well, hey, I'm a social worker set to graduate in May, or pardon me, in March. What happens to me? How come I'm not as important as a nursing student? So there's a bit of an air of faculty versus faculty. But if you are a student and you want to share your story, and it doesn't have to be so specific that you think you might be found out, you can simply be caller on line number five. Because we haven't heard very much from students, but the biggest impact long-term will be on the student and the student body, I think, right? Okay, let's keep going. All right. So the RCMP, they cover about, what is it, about 60% of the, the province and a big whopping uh, percentage of the population. Let's get this right. 80% of the province's landmass and 60% of the population. They got some 42 detachments. That sounds like a lot, but anyway. There's about 30 vacancies to join the ranks of the RCMP in this province. And some people, like it's been very, very difficult to get into the RCMP, so I'm a little surprised we have that many vacancies here. Some of the worries for young potential officers is that quite likely joining the RCMP and after your six months of training, you'll be posted wherever in the country. And some of the initial postings might be in less than attractive areas, I'll call them. But now in an effort to try to shore up some of these vacancies and get more people hired, there's a, so 30% equates to an 8% vacancy rate here in the province. The na national benchmark for vacancies for the RCMP nationwide is a little less than 6%. So what they're saying is they can't guarantee it, they can't promise it, but there will be more consideration to having uh, people from this province joining the RCMP to be posted back in their home province, which would certainly make it more attractive. So they've changed their tune somewhat, and they're not saying, okay, if you're born in this province and after your six months of training, you're going right back to your hometown. They're not promising that, but they're saying more consideration will be coming to that particular concept to try to shore up what they're experiencing in the job shortages inside the RCMP. And I'll bring this one up again and again. It's not to fan the, fa uh, the flames of fear, but the reality on the ground is, and this might be associated directly with social spending as well, is about the uptick in crime. The Stats Canada numbers say that there's been about a 20% increase in the Violent Crime Severity Index from 2020 to 2021. So the Crown prosecutors have spoken out. They're not saying that they're unable to do their jobs today, but the number of cases on their desks has increased 
by a wide margin. So there were 5,012 outstanding criminal files in the eastern region of the province. At the time, by comparison, pardon me, there was only 3,943 such files in February 2020. The office is currently dealing with prosecuting 12 charges of murder or manslaughter across the province. That does not reflect the number of appeals that are actually ongoing as well. So when we talk about, you know, the social determinants of health, I would imagine that more and more focus on those issues that have been very clearly pointed out in the health of court would not only have an impact on the long-term cost of healthcare delivery in the province, but also would have a meaningful impact, a positive impact, on the amount of violent crime that we're seeing. So I think there's a lot of overlaps between those two, and if you want to take it on, we can do it. All right, I read an interesting article in the Globe and Mail by a business analyst regarding the ongoing negotiations with the province of Quebec regarding the 2041 expiration contract between us, Hydro-Quebec, and the province of Quebec. Now, everybody's painfully aware of the history of that 1969 agreement. And in 2018, we ran out of legal options. We'd been quite litigious, you know, bringing forward issues like the doctrine of unforeseeability or principles of good faith and equity. So the courts shot it down. And we know Hydro-Quebec pays about two cents a kilowatt hour, sells it to domestic and foreign customers for about between 25 and 50 times that. So they've made off like bandits on that front. The article kind of insinuates that the province has more leverage than ever before, which is kind of a little bit counterintuitive because Hydro-Quebec is the biggest bully on the block, right? So... We have heard from Premier Legault saying that they were coming up with Plan A, Plan B, Plan C, floating out the concept of building four or five more hydro dams to satisfy their customers. But it goes on to talk about Gull Island. And look, at some point in the future, whether it be Hydro-Quebec or this province or a partnership, and people in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador aren't big on doing anything with Quebec because... History has been clear that we've come up and we've drawn the short stick. So, in 1998, this province and Quebec, they reached a tentative deal to develop Gull Island. That went sideways, of course, and what happened is the disastrous project that is Muskrat Falls. So, this particular author seems to think that we're going in holding some cards here. So whether it be, you know, a partnership with Quebec or to expand the market down into the northeastern United States and their state governors are quite clear about their thirst for hydropower, how we get it there, I think, is still a big unknown. But this person thinks that we're holding some cards. Now, Hydro-Quebec, about 15% of the power they sell comes from the Upper Churchill. And, of course, the whopping big potential at Gull Island, which is like 2,225 megawatts compared to the 824 megawatts at Muskrat Falls. But I was kind of curious to hear that someone is as bullish as that on that particular file. But that's a big one. I know. Let's go. Uh, last one before we get to your calls. So lots of conversation about Baden Nord out there, right? So we're waiting to hear exactly what's going to go on regarding the province's equity stake. And I think most importantly in the short term, how many jobs will be satisfied here for building the top sides, for instance. You know, what the end royalty looks like, I'm, I would imagine, I'm not in the room, I have no idea exactly what they're talking about, even though it looks like there's going to be about at least a billion barrels of recoverable oil out there. But certainly one of the sticking points has got to be figuring out who or what percentage all entities pay in the royalties that are going to have to flow to developing nations. Because the country signed on to the United Nations Article 82, the National Convention uh, of the, on the Law of the Sea. So this is outside our economic and protective zone of 200 nautical miles. And so we do owe 
what could be hundreds of millions of dollars based on Article 82. So the debate, I suppose, would be who has to come up with it. The federal government negotiated on that file in the 70s. It was actually uh, ratified by Parliament in 2003. So the province says, look, we didn't sign on to that. That's the federal government signed on to that. So they should be on the hook for that money. Some commentators have called that position quite petty. I think it's quite realistic. And certainly Equinor is not going to be interested in paying them. So you know full well, when we're talking the hundreds of millions of dollars and what could be as much as $10 billion in royalty flowing to the province and the federal government on that project, hundreds of millions is not a drop in the bucket. And I wonder how sticky that potential sticking point is for folks in the room on all sides of that table. How are we doing on the telephone there, Dave? Uh, let's see what's happening. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. You know the deal. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to one of the campaigners representing the Council of Canadians. That's Nick Barry Shaw. Uh, good morning, Nick. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning. Welcome to the show. So, yeah, I'm calling in because um, we're launching a major national campaign on pharmacare uh, today. We're here in Ottawa to do a press conference. And, um, you know, we wanted to kind of underline that there needs to be a, a really big popular fight for pharmacare because, unfortunately, uh, corporate interests have been blocking this policy, even though it's really urgently needed. Um, we did some research on the lobbying that's been happening in Ottawa uh, on this subject, and big pharma and big insurance have been lobbying at a really torrid pace. Uh, in the nine months since uh, the government agreed to pass a Canada Pharmacare Act in the Supply and Confidence Agreement with the NDP, uh, the Trudeau government's health ministry has been lobbied 150 times uh, just in the nine months following that agreement. So 150 times, that's about three to four meetings with corporate lobbyists that are opposed to pharmacare between these lobbyists and the ministry that is supposed to be passing pharmacare. And so lo and behold, we have virtually no progress that's been made on this legislation that the government says it's committed to. Well, undoubtedly, I mean, the the pharmaceutical industry and the pharmaceutical lobbyists have carried an, an enormous big stick in this country and throughout the world, but certainly in North America. You look at the amount of drugs prescribed, especially in the United States, but also in Canada, compared to the rest of the world, I mean, it, we're just in a different league altogether. So the most recent work done here, the chair was uh, Dr. Eric Hoskins, and repeatedly, every time this is examined, it shows long-term savings and long-term benefit for Canadians. In 2019, I think the number comes from, if I remember correctly, Canadians spent about 34 or $35 billion on prescription medicine in that one year alone. So that's the drugs, I think, are the second big, biggest expenditure after hospitals in the healthcare delivery world. So I know people have been looking at the amount of debt racked up by the federal government, certainly throughout the pandemic, and it's, it's mind-blowing. It's staggering numbers. But in long-term vision play, the upfront cost for establishing universal pharmacare, not because I say so, because every study they've ever done shows exactly this. The price tag at the beginning is huge, but then the concept of bulk purchasing power that all the problems would be combined in that effort, there's long-term savings that are quite clear. There's a bunch of Canadians with no coverage for their drugs, so consequently they don't take them, they get sicker, they take half a pill or half a prescription. You know, if it's for 30 days, they use it over the course of 60 days, which is entirely ineffective. So we're spending 
spending out of pocket, whether it be with our insurance costs that we hold individually or our corporate coverage and or the provincial drug plans, we're spending more than we need to for the amount of drugs we consume. That's absolutely right. I mean, we're, we're paying the third highest prices among wealthy countries for our drugs. We have 3.4 million people across Canada, this is the most recent numbers, that can't afford to fill their prescriptions properly. We have seniors lining up at pharmacies saying, oh, well, we'll maybe fill one or two prescriptions, but not all of them because they can't afford the cost. So this is a real crisis that people are living, and it's a crisis for our healthcare system too, because when people don't take their medication, Quite a few of them end up in the ER, which are completely overburdened as is. They don't need more people coming in because they can't afford their meds. And so there's really no reason not to bring in Pharmacare, as Dr. Hoskins outlined in his plan, except for the fact that it would harm these powerful corporate interests. And so we're calling on people to really to get organized. We're going to be having town halls uh, across Canada. And we're going to be uh, organizing to put a lot of pressure on the Trudeau government to, to live up to its promise and to bring in this reform because we know we won't get it without a fight. It's politically a difficult message to craft, especially when people will focus in on price tag today. It is really difficult to look down the road because the needs in the healthcare system, I would imagine pharmacare for many, falls well down the list. Or maybe not the three million approximately Canadians that are unable to afford to fill their prescription, but I don't know how that message gets through to people. Because in healthcare at this moment in time, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm sure you've got numbers uh, on the top of your head or on a piece of paper in front of you. But when we have the fragmented, siloed system we have, inevitably becomes cumbersome for management and financially. So there's like 100 plus government run programs. There's at least 100,000 plus private insurance plans that deal with pharmaceuticals. So if we can attend to that fragmented system, and every time that we streamline something, we find efficiencies, it inevitably costs us less. Consequently, we get more help when we need it, more value for money spent. So I can't remember the cost for the initial impact of this pharmacare uh, plan if it ever came to pass, but it was in the absolutely whopping big billions of dollars. But the 10-year vision is clear. And don't take my word for it. Google up Dr. Eric Hoskins, uh, Universal Pharmacare. You'll come to the document that they, I think, tabled in 2019, and it's very comprehensive and very self-explanatory as to the upsides. It is. Um, I think people should definitely look at the Hoskins report. Um, it provides a really clear roadmap. The initial outlays aren't actually that big. It grows as time goes on. Um, but then the savings also come in as the spending increases at the federal level. So, you know, it's, it's, the issue is not can we afford to do this. The issue is how are we going to divide up the savings that we when once we do do this, right? And that's an issue between the employers with provinces and the federal government. But the benefits for ordinary Canadians are going to be huge. You know, people will be paying less in terms of uh, insurance premiums. They won't be paying more than $100 when they go to the pharmacy. That's what Dr. Eric Hoskins laid out in his plan. And we'd be saving money and having money in our federal and provincial budgets to reinvest in health care. How do we ensure, Nick, from your perspective, how do we ensure that we don't let corporate Canada off the hook? Because they should play a role in taking care of their employees. There's a big upside to them. Time lost and a productivity issue for corporate Canada is one of their biggest issues that they face. So when they should indeed be in part responsible for taking care of their employees, how do we make sure that taxpayers don't take on the entirety of that burden when the corporations really do owe and play some role in this? That's one of the issues I've never been able to really square that circle, but I think it needs to happen because there's they have a vested interest in the health of their workforce. 
I mean, I think, you know, with with the kind of post-pandemic period that we've we've been going into with the inflation that has been eating away at people's living standards, when we look at what's happening on the corporate side, they're not suffering at all, right? Their prices have been going up, but their profits have been going up even faster. Um, and so the idea of a windfall tax has been put out there uh, many times, and I think it's completely relevant. The idea of a tax on wealth, on billionaires who, who, who've seen their, their financial wealth grow tremendously uh, in the last few years, uh, I think makes complete sense. So, I mean, the idea, and it wouldn't have to be a very large tax. Right to cover the, the the expenses of of pharmacare and the savings that would come in would you know you don't you don't really need a tax to cover it but if you want to cover the initial outlay a windfall tax would be a really good way to do it. Yeah, I, the the windfall tax. Look, I understand that they're doing it in parts of the European Union, what have you. I don't know who gets to decide when the windfall becomes a windfall and when profit becomes in excess. I don't really know how that works. And insofar as individual Canadians, as opposed to even additional taxes, like if the NDP float out things like. If you have $20 million in net wealth, then you pay X amount more. I think it was 1% was the number they used. But even if we just close the loopholes that allow so much wealth to flow offshore, you know, as we saw in the Panama Papers, the Pandora Papers, my goodness, you'd cover billions of dollars in excess uh, uh, additional tax flowing to the federal government. So I, I think we can maybe not do a whole lot more tax, but just make them pay the tax that's already on the books might be a great place to start. Uh, let me flub a couple of numbers out there. And again, Nick, correct me if and when I'm wrong. So if everyone was able to get their publicly funded and administered pharmaceuticals just to cover issues like uh, the respiratory conditions, which are chronic in this province and across the country, diabetes and all the cardiovasculars, they would talk about reduction in emergency room visits to the tune of over 200,000 fewer emergency room visits per year. The savings on that front would not only be to address backlogs, reduce wait times, they also say that the healthcare savings could be up to 1.2 or 1.5, I can't remember the right number, uh, over in, in excess of a billion dollars just on three diseases alone. So folks should really read these things because when we have someone trying to scare us into doing th- uh, something and calling this all socialism, this kind of stuff has a dollar amount early and that we can have really well-adjusted forecasts for what it's going to cost Canadians, but the benefits are just quite clear. So this is not socialism. This is pragmatism. Absolutely. I think that's um, that's something that, that needs to be said over and over again is that, you know, we're not, the obstacle is not uh, any kind of budget constraints. It's not that we don't have the money. It's not that some provinces don't want to do it. It's a lack of political will, right? But unfortunately, the Trudeau government until now has not been willing to stand up to big pharma and the insurance industry on this question because they know it's going to, it's going to eat into some of the profits that they're making. But it would have a huge benefit for everybody else. And so that's why we're, we're launching this campaign and we're calling on people to fight for pharmacare. Um, we have a website called uh, publicpharmacare.ca um, where people can go to find out more about the campaign and, uh, and encourage people to check that out. And, uh, and sign up if they want to if they want to join the fight. The political will comes down to there's so many people screaming into the void about creeping socialism and you know you run out of other people's money and all the things said about socialism. You can call it whatever you like, but if we're talking about efficiencies, productivity, and savings, and overall health outcomes being improved, that's not socialism. That, that's simply not what that means. We're throwing around a lot of isms, which are scaring people into their own corners of political ideologies, their own corners in the House of Commons, when let's just get all hands to be honest. 
uh, you know, all 338 parliamentarians, just be honest. When asked about this issue, it, make sure, number one, you understand it and research it yourself with all the documents that are right there at their fingertips. And then be honest as to whether or not you think there's long-term savings financially and better positive health care outcomes and what that means for health care spending in the, in the country. And if, there, if any of them are going to be honest, they have to at least acknowledge that the work that, that has been done is abundantly clear. This is a good idea. It doesn't matter if you're uh, right, uh, right side of the political ideology spectrum or the left or in the middle or the extreme pollers. There's something to be said, and all 338 should be polled on this one. Final word goes to you, Nick. I think that's absolutely right. You know, um, Canada is the only country with a public health care system that doesn't have a public drug insurance plan that covers everybody and makes sure nobody goes without their medications. And it's a, it's a huge piece of unfinished business. And, uh, you know, I think we need to, we need to fight to, to make it happen. I appreciate the time. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Nick. Bye-bye. That's Nick Barry Shaw from the Council of Canadians. You know, I, I get it. There has been so much focus in on... We're a social democracy, so it's not all simply about one thing or another. It's not all about capitalism. It's not all about late capitalism. It's not all about neoliberalism. It's not all about socialism. There are things that could be done. I mean, it's, it's not exactly socialism that people think is running amok and costing us more money, and we're just relying on the government more and more. Wouldn't it just make sense to save money and be healthier? I mean... I don't know how that is liberal or conservative for NDP or independent. Like, I don't really understand how we've uh, chopped that off and given it an ism and are un- we're unwilling or simply refuse to have that kind of conversation, honestly. And that's the politicians by, you know, they will criticize for the sake of they will try to scare the pants off everybody with whatever the uh, the flavor of the day is. But, you know, I, I'm looking forward to having Mr. Poliev on again because there's, this is going to be a very competitive campaign. And right now, uh, trusting the Trudeau Liberals is eroding quickly. So we'll see what becomes of it. But th- we've got to ask them these questions because we're talking about increasing health care transfer dollars. And everybody wants it and all the premiers want it. But how do we actually spend money to save money? down the road and how do we spend money in healthcare to actually make people healthier as opposed to simply hire more doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and uh, therapists and technicians because that's that's the people we need when we're sick let's go ahead and take a break don't go away Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's get a reaction to our first caller, Nick uh, Barry Sharp from the Council of Canadians, and that's Angie on four. Angie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? I'm all right, all right. Enjoying the the idea that there's snow outside. I'm legally blind, so I can't really see a whole lot. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's light and fluffy, and it's a very calm day. So it looks better than that old slushy brown stuff that we were experiencing yesterday. Welcome to the show. Yeah, What's on your well, mind, Angie? Um, well, okay. So my um, my follow up would be not just uh, diabetes medications and whatnot. I we really need to invest in the tech that goes with that as well too. Um, we're low income, and so getting access to our our needles or lancets rather, and uh, the strips is really really cost. Um, 
it's privileged, basically, we'll, we'll say. It's financially privileged. So you get 52 strips per year under the current plan for the Newfoundland and Labrador Drug Program. Mm-hmm. Um, and when when you're sick, especially, like, they, you know, they want you to monitor your, you know, your, your, your blood sugars multiple times a day. So getting 50, only getting 52 opportunities throughout the year to check your blood sugar for a diabetic is really super ineffective and just costs more later on, you know, because you end up being really unmanaged. It's not just the, you know, trying to eat healthy as much as you possibly can. Cost of living, of course, makes that all really difficult. You know, um, all of these things all tie together. But at the end of the day, it means that the diabetic doesn't get the opportunity because of really silly cost measures that they've put in place that don't help anybody at all. You know, so, I mean, there's that. Um, I'm also autistic with ADHD, so... I frequently forget to check my blood sugars. I kind of I, I need something a, te- a piece of tech that does the work for me, um, so that I don't have to worry about it. And that information thing, um, if we we used to have something called a Freestyle Libre sensor, right? Um, when my husband was working, and that sensor would just automatically download, you know, like my sugar information without me having to do a whole lot. I would. You know, I get prompted to check every now and again by my cell phone, which was great. But then um, it would take that information and send that right off to my doctor. So my doctor has a continuous set of information rolling over, knowing how I'm doing. That doesn't get provided anymore now. So because we can't afford the sensors, they cost $100 each every two weeks. Um, so in our house, that's 400 bucks a month. That's because of insurance coverage and whatnot. And we had it when my husband worked at Walmart. We don't have it now because now we're on income support. Um, so let me ask you a cost comparison question, Angie. So uh, yeah. compared to the the subscription price, I'll call it, for one of these uh, continuous glucose monitors, give yep. us the, the contrast to what it would cost for strips throughout the year after the 52, the 52 that are provided are, are done, are gone. I believe the last time I paid for, because um, I, uh, hang on now, the... I think it was 85 bucks for a pack of 100. So, I mean, that's, you know, when you only get, right now we currently get five, uh, sorry, 491, including our um, our subsidies for, because we're clients of the home support program. So that's an extra bit of a bump up and whatnot, but definitely not enough to cover, you know, extra strips throughout, you know, that we would need through the month and whatnot. So, I mean, 85 for just 100 strips, is I mean that's a lot. That's a lot for our household because it's not just me who's diabetic. It's my husband as well too. So, How long does it last? Know, How long do a hundred last? Um, if you're monitoring three times a day, okay, as a regular diabetic because you you you're not just supposed to do once a day. Um, forgive my math. I'm I'm really sucky at it. I can. Yeah, I'll let you do the calculator bit. <laughs> but if on a regular basis, so 33, 34 days. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, three, yeah, th- uh, three times a day times two people, you know, that's 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 a lot of strips. That's a lot of needles. Yeah, okay, so for two people, maybe just over a couple of weeks, two and a half weeks for that particular box. Uh, this yeah. question is not meant to be mean-spirited, so take it for how I'm <laughs> intending it, is how does, for instance, if government did more to support, whether it be in part or in full for a continuous glucose monitor, how does that not only help you, but how does it help 
the taxpayer? How does it help the healthcare system? I think I know what the answer is, given the fact that if you have an issue where you don't test uh, frequently enough and you end up being sick, then you're back into the hospital or what have you. So how does it help the healthcare system and the government? Well, it means that I have, if I have these monitors, it means that I'm able to better monitor my sugars, not just over the long term, but over the short term as well, too. So that means much less frequent visits to the hospital, much less uh, frequent visits to my doctor as well, too. Um, It means better opportunity for better usage of uh, not just the tech, but even food as well, too, because when when you do get sick, your cravings get all really messed up. So you don't know whether it's a sugar craving that you're supposed to be looking after or salt or whatever, but it means like you're, you're sick less often. So you actually, you know, you regulate and when you regulate things run better. Um, when personally, as a, uh, as a person who's autistic with ADHD, I don't always make the best choices either. So when I'm dysregulated because my sugars are off, I make much more poor choices um, in terms of uh, even shopping shopping and whatnot. It, it gets, everything gets so much more complicated. And those are events that end up being very costly as well, too, because it's, um, oh God, it's, uh, it's a whole, it's a, mix, it's a mixed bag of things, but it essentially it means that I'm in the hospital much more often than I really should be. I figured that was the answer, but I I'd, I'd figured I'd let you offer it as opposed to me anecdotally. No, no, it's okay. It's uh, okay. It gets really complicated really fast when you have a lot of com- uh, comorbidities, mm-hmm. but it knocks everything out of whack. Just having your sugars out of whack, it, it, it changes your mood. You end up with crazy mood swings and stuff like that. I mean, that it's 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 so hard to explain because in a short amount of time because there are so many factors that tie into it i'm also i also have a spina bifida so i mean it sets off factors in that way as well too i end up with much more pain um and inflammation so i mean you yourself i'm, I'm sure you know you've had bad back and whatnot over the years if i've heard correctly over the, over the radio so. yeah yeah so i mean when you when your sugars are up all of your systems are all inflamed, and it's really hard to calm down when you can't track, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, you know, again, there will be a lot of people listening, and fair enough, they'll think, you know, boy, we're talking about government here to pay for everything, and the whole business about one ism or another and socialism. But I think if we're being realistic, preventative medicine costs far less than reacting after the fact. It just does. I mean, if you it think absolutely. about it, it, it absolutely does. I mean, a night in the hospital, or a week or a month in the hospital, or repeatedly having to go to emergency rooms, or to private clinics, or what have you, if we add up the cost, if people were kept away from the need to do those things, emergency rooms or otherwise, we just save money. We just do. And I hate to talk about it as the be-all and end-all is money, but in reality, we have to talk about the financial side of it, but keeping people out of the hospital is an excellent idea. It just is. It's not even just the hospital thing. It means less sick days and stuff like that for people who were employed. When you when your sugars are out of whack, you ha- your I mean, I was uh, admitted to hospital a year and a half ago, I think, because of of misprescribed meds. So I ended up um, um, I had an allergic reaction that caused a smoke inf- inflammation reaction, um, and I ended up in the hospital because the meds that they gave me to counteract the smoke thing sent my sugars up over thirty. So I ended up at like near coma stage, but. That's the thing. Like there are so many factors that tie in to diabetes management that 
making it easier to monitor those changes just makes such a massive difference. No doubt. Angie, really appreciate making time for the program. Thank you. I wish you well. Thank you very much. You have a good day. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, and I guess that's where I was attempting to go off the top when we talk about, you know, we need to deal with the shortages and the backlogs that exist today in the healthcare system. But how do we incorporate this new money, we'll call it, to deal with root cause issues? Whether it be in the social determinants of health or application of technology regarding diabetics and the problem, all of those different things. You know, and again, I would challenge representatives of all parties to tell me why they might think this is a good idea or they don't think it's a good idea. Because I think we're out an explanation. Because preventative medicine will absolutely, inevitably save us money, not only in the long run, but in the short to medium run as well. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about empty beds in Central. What beds? We'll find out. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go say good morning to the PC member for exploits. That's Pleeman Forsey on two. Pleeman, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Good morning, Patty. My call this morning uh, is to concern, certainly, that there are still 30 beds left empty in the, in the new long-term care facilities here in Central. Mm-hmm. We have 15 uh, in Gander and, and 15 in Grand Falls, Windsor. And I'm, uh, I'm still, you know, continu- continuously receiving calls from families trying to get their loved ones into those, into those beds. You know, and not only that, Patty, this is hanging up the acute care beds at the hospitals with other people, you know, needing surgeries and uh, trying to get their surgeries done because there, there's no beds available, you know. So we, if we utilize that and get them into uh, the long-term care, we'd loosen up those beds. And, uh, Patty, I did uh, I did attend a uh, – this brings me to another point. I, I attended the forum in, in Grand Falls, Windsor last night, and I must say that was a – it was a great forum. Uh, the coalition did a great job uh, with the meeting last night. But uh, but that point was uh, was brought up a couple of times. That uh, you know, people, delays in surgery, uh, you know, for people waiting long times to get the surgery done, this leads to a bigger risk to the uh, to general public. You know, so it's it's a big issue. Well, of course it is, and these are the human resources issues, right? So that's where, like, what I'm talking about is, you know, how do we actually f- look at how we spend healthcare money? Because yes, the short-term need is very, very real. Even if we're just talking about this example of 30 empty beds, because you're right, they're occupying a bed which further backlogs uh, whatever procedure or surgery that is left on the outside looking in. So. How do you balance that with trying to keep people out of those beds in the first place? That's where I don't know, and I'm sure glad it's not my job to figure it out, but that investment in uh, the social determinants really goes a long way to addressing these issues. And I know it won't help today, but it'll certainly help tomorrow. If healthcare spending in this province over the last four decades has increased by 232%, yet social spending has increased by 6%, obviously money is not the answer, or not the entirety of the answer. No, we need to find the resources, Patty, no doubt, and, and, and have people adequate so we can adequately fit those people into the long-term cares. You know, we we need, to, in training alone, we need to find adequate spaces, you know, to train those people and uh, and probably provide some incentive, in, initiatives and incentives, you know, for, for those people to get into those, those professions and, uh, and keep the uh, long-term cares and get those long-term cares open so that we could uh, utilize those beds. And, uh, you know, because we need that, and, and like I say, those points were brought up a couple of times there last night, and, and it really struck me on that because, uh, and this was not only brought up by general public, it was brought up by professionals that attended that meeting, you know, so it's, uh, it, it is a big issue, and we'd like to see this, this addressed, you know, so that uh, we, can, we can move on, and it, it shows that everything go, goes right through the system, Patty, you know, the, the lack of, uh, the lack of uh, resources in the system, you know. 
Fair enough. So what are the healthcare disciplines that are required to open those 30 beds? Is there a list of multi-disciplines, whether it be registered nurses and others, complements, nurse practitioners, what have you? What are we needing to open those beds? Well, we need nurses in there, Patty, and we need the LPNs and uh, PCAs, you know, to uh, attend to uh, attend to those uh, residents in those units. And uh, you know, until we get the until we get the resources in there, you know, maybe uh, utilization of of the uh, resources that we do have, you know, the scope of training, maybe uh, you know, uh, utilizing the professionals that we already have there, you know, may, might come for better outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the numbers of people sitting in a, in a hospital bed today or an acute care bed that simply need a dye test or simply need to be in long-term care is staggering. You know, when we hear that there are no beds in the hospital, but there's lots of beds in personal care homes and or long-term care facilities, then neither one of those examples make much in the way of any sense, do they? So how many people are waiting? So I, I suppose it makes sense that, you know, things like the, the traveling for catheterization procedures so that you can get out of your hospital bed. Some of those things make sense to me. I know some people have voiced some concerns, but what do you think of that particular plan? Because I'm going to pick your brain on some of the most recent things that have happened. What do you make of that heart force one, the one day in and out to get your dye test? That gets you out of your hospital bed. Well, yes, uh, it does, Patty. You know, we, we need to concentrate on that uh, and uh, get people moving in assistance. We need to we need to get uh, get people out of those beds as fast as possible, so so, so we can move on with other procedures and and and, other, and better outcomes for for individuals. You know, so that's uh, that's something that we have certainly have to concentrate on. A hundred percent. Appreciate you making time for the show. Anything else you want to say, Pleeman? Oh, actually, I just said I think we should challenge all the parties on things like: Have you ever seen an evaluation of what it costs individuals? Uh, for stri- uh, strips or lancets if they're diabetics versus if there was some either cost sharing or coverage from the government for a continuous glucose monitor. Have you seen that evaluation done? And where, do, where would your party come down on things like that? Because that's, in the, uh, that's part of the essence of preventative medicine. Uh, no, Patty, I, I don't have the figures on that. I really don't. But uh, it's something that's an issue, and the glucose, and they say, you know, we need to get those monitors to get blood uh, blood sugars uh, levels so to, you know, make people healthier. But, Patty, I, I would like to touch on the uh, on the forum in Grand Falls, Windsor. Last sure, year. go ahead. Uh, you know, I thought it was a great forum, and it was... Uh, it was uh, certainly uh, certainly brought off good by the coalition, and I, I must uh, commend Cyril Farrell and uh, and Holly Dwyer on the work they did. Uh, and it was just a public forum, and this was to uh, basically make uh, make people aware of the situations, you know, that's going to be entailed by the uh, health accord, and uh, you know, it. It gave to what communities can do themselves to help, and and what individuals themselves could do to help. You know, as being part of some of the subcommittees that's uh, that, that 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 can form. You know, and it and it gave residents basically it gave residents uh, uh, a chance to uh, ask questions and and relay some of the health stories. You know, that that majorly affected them. You know, so it's uh, it, it was a good meeting in, in the end, and, and I commend them for doing it. Appreciate the time, Pleeman. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's keep going here and we'll go to line number five. Marie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Um, I, I'm calling today because I want an answer to a question that I can't seem to get a straight answer from. My, uh, the thing is, Patty, why in this province today do we don't have back surgeries going on? There are no back surgeries happening? No, no, Patty, there aren't. Uh, uh, I'm after going through every avenue you can possibly think of from the bottom right up to the top where the premier is. And uh, 
you know, we are. We, we, I, I was told this week when I called in, my sister was due for a surgery Christmas, and uh, it got cancelled because there was no bids. She's still waiting for her surgery. She hasn't even got a call uh, telling her when her surgery is coming up. Uh, I've 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 called into the Health Science Center. I've spoke to a lady Val in there, and uh, she uh, told me uh, after Christmas uh, she, uh, she's on the top of the list to get her surgery. You know, I called that lady uh, again this uh, week, and she told me there's no back surgeries being carried out. It's simply because there's no beds in the orthopedic ward. I don't know what the reason is. I, I just think all this is a lot of hogwash about the beds because, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's no, uh, you, you got to look at it. There's none being done. There's nothing being done. So what gives our government the right to cut out back surgeries in this province? the way they're doing it. I mean... You said that it's all hogwash. What in particular are you referring to as hogwash? Because, because Patty, I've, I've, I've got myself wore out calling numbers, trying to see, to, to get my sister in for surgery. And I'm, I'm, I'm told lies all the way around. They just tell you uh, something that you want to hear to get you off their back, but they're not doing anything about it, Patty. They're not doing anything to answer the question. And my sister, uh, she's got five discs in her back pressing up against the nerves. And she's in a tremendous amount of pain. Now, she was handling that pain uh, by taking Tylenol. And she was taking a lot of Tylenol, and I mean a lot, to, 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 to fend off this pain. And I told her, I said, look, go back to your doctor and get back on your steroids, you know, because of, of what the t- I said, the Tylenol is going to give you liver damage. Then you're going to be in another scenario. Uh, she went back. They put her on the steroids again. What, what came from that was she ended up in hospital this week uh, because of, of uh, her blood sugar levels were 336 and uh, they told her she was headed for a coma because of the sugars that were in the steroids. So now my sister is left with uh, no painkiller because uh, she got to watch her sugar levels now. Because uh, if her sugar levels goes up, then she's in another scenario. And it's like, Patty, it's just a Band-Aid. They had to put her on insulin. And, and, and wash it into her body okay. uh, to get the sugar levels down. Yeah, I don't know why there are no back surgeries taking place. I'm surprised that that number would be zero. But just a quick reference to uh, Tylenol or acetaminophen and your liver. The, you know, the studies are quite clear that if you take a really large dose of acetaminophen, you can indeed cause acute liver failure. If you have higher recommended uh, daily doses for an extended amount of time, you can indeed trigger some liver disease or liver failure. But you can, and you know, if you're, especially if you're a non-drinker, taking the recommended dose of Tylenol, it's okay. But it's the really large doses that can get you in trouble. Just want to throw that out there. Yeah, that's 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 correct, Patty. That's correct. And see, the the whole thing in a nutshell, her pain level is so extensive. Uh, like taking what's prescribed on the bottle, 
she's got to go way over that amount to kill the pain. And, uh, you know, I don't understand. Uh, our premier, I, I, I've tried to call him. I've tried to call uh, uh, other people in government. Uh, to try to, to get them to find out what's going on here. I've called the surgeon. I've, I've tried to get someone to intervene to, to talk to the surgeon and uh, to see if uh, when this surgery is coming up. I'm trying to relay to him what's going on with my sister. I mean, she could have she died. I could have lost my sister this week because, because of a blunder, because of a blunder in the system. And it's not good enough, Patty. It's not good enough. I need someone... I really need someone to investigate what's going on with these back surgeries. Uh, it's, it's critical. People are out there suffering and dying, and they're ending up in the grave because of these mistakes and blunders. We will indeed get some information on back surgeries. Uh, I know where to go for that. So let me see. And when I get the information, which I should be able to get fairly quickly, uh, we'll talk about it on the show. But I wish you and your sister especially, I wish her well. Patty? I know, I know you're telling me that you're going to do it. I know you're going to do it, and God bless you. But I'm telling you, don't be surprised by the, by, by the, 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 the roadblocks they put up uh, to, to cover their, their tracks. I mean, I, I got doctors uh, trying to blame someone else for, for mistakes that are going out with my sister. And it all comes down to doing your job and doing your job correctly. And if you're not doing that, there's going to be mistakes. That's fair. I appreciate this, Marie. Let me see what I can find out. God bless you, Patty. Take and I hope, I hope you can get an answer for me because I'm so. telling you, Patty, I'm exhausted. I'm totally, I'm depressed and everything over this, this scenario that's going on. And I, I don't know where else to turn. Let me see what I can do. And I appreciate the call, Mario. Hope you're, oh. everyone's okay. Okay, God bless take you, care. Patty. Alrighty. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, will I take Dale here, Dave? Okay, let's go to line number one. Dale, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Uh, you're doing a great job, great platform, uh, uh, very informers. Uh, anyway, yesterday uh, I bought a couple things over the years off Marketplace, uh, Facebook, and yesterday I got scammed for $100 out of the buy and sell out of Bonavesta Marketplace. And uh, what happened? I went to the cops. Uh, what happened? I uh, seen a great deal. They, they had several items or five items for sale. Looked like it moving. They were moving out of the province. Uh, text the lady, yeah, yeah, uh, at the end of it, uh, yeah, we'll get a deposit. Okay, naturally enough, like, I think that it would look like a really good deal for a couch set. So, okay, I sent her $100, and uh, she was happy with it. And then, and then later in the afternoon, I kind of thought about it. I said, you know what? Um, I should text her back and get her phone number, because i got to drive to Bonavest. It's, it's an hour and a half drive. Uh, so, yeah, I'll get a phone number in case i got problems on the way and I don't make it there. And uh, she came back and said, uh, I'm busy at work, having that time. And she never responded after. Uh, so my girlfriend got on her phone and contacted the same lady and said, yeah, it's still available. Uh, gave her a different email address for to send the money, a deposit, of course, she wanted, and uh, a different location to pick it up in Bonavesta. So, uh, yeah, I got scammed. I uh, went to the RCMP or just left the station, and they figured there's not much you can do about it. Uh, I contacted Facebook and put in what I could through them, uh, but just wanted to throw it out there. Uh, you know, <laughs> and I'm sure there's m many scams besides the one I got nailed with. But uh, anyway, it was out of the Bonavista. It seemed, seemed legit. 
and but yet uh, I know it's a ripoff. <laughs> Yeah, you got to watch yourself. I mean, it's so tempting, especially when it's a good deal and it's exactly what you're looking for and it's close by. But, I mean, we've even had to go to the lengths that when you make these types of deals online, there's even spaces in uh, police headquarter parking lots so that you do it safely, let alone trying to avoid getting ripped off. So appreciate the warning for everyone out there who might be shopping uh, on whether it be Facebook Marketplace or anywhere else where it's an online opportunity. Sight unseen, it's always, it's always potentially dodgy, isn't it? Uh, yeah, actually, when I, when I, after I did send the money, I looked at a friend of mine uh, and said, you know what? I got a feeling that I got, just got ripped off. And at the end of the day, I did. I'm going to my bank to see what they can do, but I'm assuming there's probably not much they can do either but stopping this payment or the payment's already gone, obviously. Yeah. So, Sorry it happened to you, but hopefully it doesn't happen again. Yeah, no, Patty, uh, you're doing a great job. Uh, appreciate you, and uh, take care. You too, Dale. All the best. Okay, bye bye. Yeah, I mean, you got to be careful on those sites. But anyway, don't you? Okay, let's take a break. Uh, probably going to get some more reaction in the 10 o'clock hour about what went on at the meeting out in Grand Falls, Windsor yesterday about the future for healthcare in Central. And then, of course, whatever topic you want to talk about, same with me. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go. Is my, does that sound okay, Dave? It sounds funny in my ears. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Community Healthcare Coalition Chair out in Grand Falls, Windsor. That's Cyril Farrell. Cyril, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yeah, we, uh, we had a pretty successful event last night, I think, here in Grand Falls, Windsor. Uh, we had about uh, I I don't know the exact number, but 250 to 300 people, I guess, uh, at the classic theater, and uh, we took the time to uh, let people know what we've been up to for the past year uh, when it comes to uh, looking at the health accord and what it might mean for our town, and uh, and the mayor took some time to. Uh, uh, to talk about some of the, I guess, impediments to uh, uh, ensuring that we have, uh, you know, family physicians and nurses and so on to meet the demand as well. Uh, so we had a very successful event, uh, and, and there was certainly an opportunity for a lot of people to tell stories of, about their situations and so on. So it was it was, uh, it was very nice. Yeah. So what specifically are we hearing? Because. Like most, people just want what they want when they need it. And so that's an easy enough demand. But did you hear anything specific? Like, I mean, there's municipalities thinking about different things they can do to make sure their clinic or hospitals or emergency rooms are staffed and up and running. So did you hear any specific uh, offerings from your attendees? Uh, not not particularly uh, in in that light. Uh, you know, the mayor certainly uh, you know made reference to the fact that you know municipalities are not in the business of recruiting doctors and nurses and and health professionals, but there's a lot that municipalities can do to support recruitment and retention. And our our uh, uh, coalition actually uh, did a lot of research around that and. Uh, and we put together uh, an 18-recommendation report to council on things that they can do uh, as a town to, uh, to support recruitment and retention. And, uh, and you, know, you know, we understand in the news that Ponte Vista is looking at, you know, some, you know, bonuses and land and so on. And, yeah, you know, they have to do what they have to do and so on. We're not looking down that road, at least at this point in time, uh, but, but we want to make 
Grand Falls Windsor an attractive place to come to work and to have a good life work balance. Yeah. And you see, municipalities aren't in the business of recruiting. And that's absolutely true because we can't have everyone left up to their own devices. And the success of healthcare in your region is all up to the mayor and council. No, absolutely not. But do you think municipalities play a role? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, they play a role. Uh, they they play a role in uh, in uh, all sorts of different ways of making it a welcoming community for, for physicians and families and so on. Like, I guess, you know, doctors can go anywhere and work. Anybody can go anywhere and work. But it's what they can do after work and so on that makes them want to stay in a community. It's, you know, it can't be all work. It has to be things that their children can do, their, uh, uh, their spouse can do and so on and that's I think where uh, where municipalities can play a very strong role in uh, in supporting uh, recruitment and retention of, uh, of uh, not just doctors but nurses and, and the whole gamut of healthcare workers yeah, because, you know, like I've asked various mayors the type of interactions that they've had, for instance, with uh, the Deputy Minister of Health Community Services, Dr. Megan Hayes, to help her or to aid her in coming up with very tailor-made recruitment packages because it's not only recruiting the healthcare professional, it's opportunities for their partner or spouse and their children and whatever amenities are available. You and your mayor, um, uh, Barry Manuel, and other mayors of the municipalities, they have a much better idea about what the community has to offer so they can put that in the minds and in the hands of recruiters like Dr. Hayes so that she can do the best job possible to highlight what the benefits are of living and working in Grand Falls, Windsor, for instance. So I do think the municipalities play some role there because how could she possibly be able to come up with a strategy to recruit in every different pocket of the province having not have that personal, intimate, lived experience there? That's the only thing I think where municipalities can play a really active role. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, uh, the report that we uh, put together on recruitment and retention, we've shared that with Dr. Hayes and her staff. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure what they – that was just uh, just before Christmas. Haven't been talking to them since, but hopefully it's, it'll be of some benefit to them. And uh, we, we think that, uh, you know, it will go a long way uh, over time to help uh, with, with the recruitment effort and the, uh, and the retention effort. For sure. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to offer this morning, Sarah, while you're here? No. Uh, you know, it uh, it, uh, it it turned out to be a really good meeting. There was, uh, you know, a lot of uh, very positive feedback as a result. I think the uh, uh, the people who attended were very appreciative of what we uh, uh, what we offered last night, and uh, and uh, and to have the opportunity to to speak and uh, and that's that was our goal. Like I said, uh, at, at from the beginning was to uh, provide that opportunity for for people to engage. And so what's next? Is there a follow-up meeting coming, or what's next steps? Well, we, we, we're certainly going to look at that. Uh, as actually today, uh, the town is going to be uh, posting a video of the event last night. Uh, so people can uh, can watch it at your leisure. Uh, we have uh, uh, briefly had a discussion because of such a demand last night of maybe uh, at some point uh, doing a virtual town hall as well, uh, and uh, you know a similar kind of a, a format. So uh, you know, so we will be going to uh, uh, have actually this afternoon uh, our our coalition is meeting uh, for a regular monthly meeting, and we'll certainly be having a little bit of a debrief and uh, and look at 
at what we can do from here forward. Let us know when we can help promote the, the next upcoming virtual or in-person meeting. Appreciate the time this morning, Cyril. Okay, thanks very much, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Sarah Farrell. He's the Community Healthcare Coalition Chair in Grand Falls, Windsor. Very quickly before we get to the break and come back to talk to Marie about what's happening out in Central Health, Linda's going to give us a warning on a scam that she encountered. Just want to say a happy birthday to faithful listener to the program, Sam Newhook. Sam, we appreciate you tuning in. Hopefully you have the happiest of birthdays. So from everyone here, I guess, well, myself and David Williams, happy birthday to Sam Newhook. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Marie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, the question I have for you this morning is, I will come that the doctors can leave for two weeks and go away. Maybe they do have meetings or something to attend. But why can't they have someone in their place to, to uh, uh, see you if you get really sick like I was this past week? So, like, I handed up in uh, Gander. I had called my son, and he came over at, and we got in there at 2 p.m. Well, I was here till 12 midnight. No no doctor, never seen a doctor. I, no, I never saw a doctor. So um, we had to leave because the storm was coming on, and we came back. We had hours drive back here and came back here. So the next morning we got up, we got in there 8 o'clock, and uh, we got back home uh, 4.30 in the evening. And I did get to see a doctor, and I did get diagnosed or whatever and uh, in Gander. And he said, you're back to square one from three years ago. So, uh, and then he said, you go come back to your community, get to your family doctor and call up here. And the family doctor and the thing, new thing they got up here in the medical clinic now, she's not allowed to take no appointments for this doctor. She won't be back till Tuesday. Okay, just one second, Marie. So your doctor simply went on holidays? I don't know where she went. I know she was. I know. I knew she was gone for two weeks. She could be gone to meetings. She could be gone on holidays. Now this has happened a couple of times, and no one in her place. But even her husband is a doctor here. So why couldn't he, you know, be seeing her patients or something like that? I don't understand why we got left stranded. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why the doctor was away for a couple of weeks, but of course, like every other professional in the world, time away throughout the course of the year is going to happen, whether it be for conferences or simply a vacation, a getaway. So are you suggesting that it should be incumbent on the doctor to have someone backfill their spot while they're gone? Because that that would be fairly complicated, I would, would imagine. Yeah, well, you know, what what are we supposed to do? You know, you know, you're so sick that I'm, like I was so sick that I was so weak that I I couldn't I couldn't keep up. I mean, I'm just I was just drained. And um, where am I supposed to go? I went into the clinic here, walking clinic twice. They gave me two lots of pills, which no test done, and uh, it didn't it didn't help me one bit. And uh, now I got to wait to see her or uh, see the specialist in Grand Falls to try and and uh, the only higher option for me is surgery. So um, I, I will take the surgery rather than uh, uh, spend another three years like I've spent through COVID and everything and, and everything else that I couldn't get seen to and all this. So I'm willing to take the surgery if I could get to see the specialist in St. John's. So, you know, it's it's awful. The Medicare is is, ter- is terrible. 
you got to uh, you got to fight for your rights or something. I don't know. You got to fight for your life. I believe. You know, and and uh, like I said, it's, it's not not very good when you you can't help yourself and you're really sick and you're. You just can't get out of bed and from the bed to the washroom or, or from Chesterfield to the washroom or whatever, and you, you're just so weak and everything is drained out of your body. I mean, you just, you don't know where to turn or where to go. And, and uh, I had no other choice but, but go to candor and, and get seen to. So uh, just so I make sure I have this all straight, you got to see a doctor, but it was at a walk-in clinic. Yes, it was, yeah, after hours. Okay. Let me call after hours here. So you did indeed get some help. Yes, I did. I did get I did get two lots of medication, but I had no test on, so the medication wasn't helping me. So was the doctor that you saw were they unable to refer you to a specialist, or do you simply need your own family doctor to make that referral? I'm not sure why that would be the case. No, I have seen specialists. Uh, uh-huh. okay. uh, in November, I filed specials in Grand Falls, and he wanted me to go off of the pills that was helping me, because he he figured that I I I didn't uh, see see if it was back or if it wasn't back, and I and he said, "How do you know it's back?" I said, "I know I know it's still there because I know my body." Any anyway, I did what he told me, and this is why I end up in the state I'm in. Fair enough. Um, you know, when we know that the doctors and other healthcare professionals are saying it's not just all about money for them either, it's the ability to have a little bit of a break from the 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 constant long days, no time to get away, and oh, the whole the whole concept that. of work life balance. So I think if we if we don't attend to that too, we're probably going to make a bad situation even worse. Now that's not to say that it's it's reasonable or even remotely acceptable to be left on the lurch with no opportunity to get some health care because you're I guess you're probably lucky enough to have even had the opportunity to go to a walk-in clinic where that's not even available in many parts of the province I know I know I appreciate that and uh, I've been there and um, you know I've got help there what they can do there and you can only do so much it's not there's, there's tests that they can't do and that and so that's why I end up going in Gander got my son to take me in Gander because mm-hmm. I couldn't join myself because I was too sick right and uh, yeah I understand that but they can't do in here what they can do in Gander because they don't have the equipment or whatever right I understand but uh, yeah no I just thought I'd uh, put it on open line because uh, what I went through this past week uh, being so sick I'm just getting on my feet today and it's been two weeks for sure I've been so sick right but hopefully now when she gets back on on Tuesday I don't know if I'll get to see her because they got the change I called up here yesterday just to make appointments here they're not taking any more appointments as change excuse me it's changed and that so uh hopefully i'll get to tour on tuesday and get to see her and then work from there and go back to the specialist in grandpa's and work from there so thank you for your your time i my pleasure i'm glad you called marina hope you're doing okay have a good day you too bye-bye, bye-bye. uh let's keep going line number two linda you're on the air hi patty how are you this morning doing fine thanks how are you doing uh, I just want to alert your listeners uh, of a scam uh, phone call that I had yesterday. Uh, they uh, they claimed they were calling from my bank, and they wanted to let me know that my uh, Visa card was used 
for two transactions yesterday morning, one for a $400 and one for a $1,400 international gift cards. Now, uh, I wasn't really surprised because two or three years ago, I had a call from my bank alerting me to someone had uh, someone had used my um, visa card over in Pakistan. Oops. So that was a valid thing. They had cleaned out my uh, bank account. Uh, it was a good thing I didn't have a lot of cash in there, but they cleaned out my bank account. It took me two weeks. Uh, to get my money back and apparently when they tracked it down um, they did an investigation someone had stolen my number when I used my uh, my card in at um, Walmart in Mount Pearl so it's pretty local all this stuff but the call I had yesterday with the $400 and the $1,400 uh, that was a scam because the gentleman on the other line who had a foreign accent, uh, I couldn't understand everything he was saying, but he was insistent on me giving him uh, my first six digits of my uh, credit card. And uh, I questioned him and questioned him, and I said, I don't really know who you are. I said, can you give me some identification that you're calling from my bank? Well, he couldn't, and he was, uh, like I said, I couldn't understand everything he was saying, but he was insistent on getting those numbers. But he finally, when I, I uh, argued with him so much and, and let him know that I wasn't giving out any information, he finally hung up on me. So I called my bank because I was concerned that it was legit. So I called my bank, and they said, no way. If they were looking for the first six digits of my card, that was a way for them to identify which bank I was with. Because something I didn't know, uh, or I wasn't aware of really, uh, was that each bank, each uh, uh, institution has uh, a different uh, number at the beginning. The first three numbers in my bank account in my bank uh, is different from the three numbers on somebody's card in another bank and and all the way around so i wasn't aware of that but she said that is how they do it right away this gentleman he could have uh, known and had i given out six numbers the first three would have let him know which bank i was dealing with Absolutely. Yeah, there's, you know, it's either the first six or the first eight, depending on the credit card that you have, that are absolute giveaways for the bank. It's simply called the bank identification numbers. So you're right. Like, even if you see a receipt, sometimes you'll see a bunch of asterisks and then the last couple of numbers on your credit card because the first ones are really the ones that put you in jeopardy if someone gets their hands on them. So you're 100% right. And the only thing to do here every single time is that, if you get a call, whether someone says you have bought a big purchase on Amazon or someone bought a bunch of gift cards, just hang up and call your credit card provider or call your bank to see whether or not they actually have it on file because far too often, you know, it can sound so real and they can spoof the number that looks like it's coming from down the road, but 99 times out of 100, it's not, and it's a scam. So you did the right thing. Yes, and I just want to, uh, I just want to, uh, for all of our, uh, our listeners to take, uh, take heed to this because, uh, this guy was, uh, could have been, uh, pretty intimidating to some of the older folks out there. Sure. You know? Yep.
they, they get so nervous when somebody calls and they think everything is uh, above board. And uh, somebody could have really been taken in yesterday had they uh, gotten that call, as I did. Regardless of what they're looking for, health care information, your social insurance, your banking info, it's always the rule of thumb to simply politely uh, get them off the line and then call whatever, whether it be your bank or whoever else or CRA or whoever pretend, is pretending to call you to help you because they're only trying to hurt you. Absolutely. I appreciate the heads up, Linda. Thank you, then. Take good care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Yeah, there is, there's, I'm going to say never a good idea to give out any of that info to an incoming unprovoked call. You can always just call them back. You know, the number's right on back of your credit card to call them. And then you get in the queue. It might be a little bit aggravating, and it might take a little bit of time to get to the bottom of it. But that bit of time is well spent versus being milked of your hard-earned cash. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on the topic of your choosing. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, caller on uh, line number three. Uh, hello, Patty? Yes. Uh, hi, long-time listener, uh, first-time caller. Welcome to the show. Uh, love your show. You, you put off uh, a great, great show every day. Uh, very informative. Um, the reason I'm calling today is that uh, I've been waiting for multiple tests over the years for uh, for illness and because of COVID it gets uh, put up and put off and then after that uh, something happened with uh, I think MCP cards okay what kind of appointment did you have cancelled due to COVID uh, mostly uh, like stomach esophagus oops, like that like that kind of area okay um uh i did the one thing i was able to get through was blood work which uh oddly enough they all came back fine uh but last week i uh went to the hospital and apparently uh, i'm in liver failure oh no uh so they gave me a month to 12 months to live which is kind of a it's devastating and so you're chalking this up to canceled appointments that it could have been caught earlier could have been treated and to avoid this terrible prognosis well i'm not sure if it could have been caught okay or not? I think I don't want to point blame. Like I know, like a lot of people on your show, like want to go and blame the medical system. But like I always have my blood work done, and this would have been shown, I would think. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, I got to face the reality of what's going to happen. Uh, the reason I'm calling, uh, Patty, is that where you're so informative is that I wasn't prepared for this, as nobody would be. 
And I was just wondering if there's any kind of funding groups for someone like myself. So you're looking for a support group or for a counselor, just to make sure I'm going to try to put you in the right direction. Uh, financially. Like, I don't have anything saved for, like, uh, cremation. Uh, I don't have any kind of insurance. Um, and today's living is just really hard to live off of. Mm-hmm. Especially, like, and, like, the, the way I look at it, the healthier you are by eating and exercising and helping yourself mentally can get you along a lot easier and longer in life as opposed to giving up and giving in. But with what I make right now, um, I, I can't afford salads every day and, and uh, like I said I don't have anything put away for uh, a week or a certain or my family or anything like that there are death benefits out there um, there's a long eligibility list you know whether it's a income supported eligibility criteria whether it's a CPP death benefit coverage there are places that you can turn, and if we're talking about strictly financial issues, so I'm going to put you on to the folks at Income and Employment Support at the government. They do indeed have a special needs benefit. I don't know if everything about your circumstance makes you eligible for it, but that's where I would turn if I was you. And there's a, there's a lot of regulations surrounding it, so it really does require uh, a checklist to be addressed between you and whoever you get to speak to. So that's what I would do on that front. And then if we're talking about uh, your liver and what that means for the prognosis, maybe the supports from the Liver Foundation of Canada or the Liver Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador might be another place to turn for information and potential supports and some guidance or counseling. So those two places, that's where I would go. Okay. Is there any way you could pass that along uh to my email? You send me an email, I'll send you the links that I can find. Okay, no, that would be great. Okay. And uh, like I said, like, uh, this just came out of the blue. Yes, I'm uh, really sorry to hear it. Uh, nobody expected this, especially not me. And uh, there was no warning signs, really. Boy, oh boy. But when I heard it, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I still don't know what to do. That's why I called this morning. I will try to get a financial link uh, prepared for when I receive your email. My email address is an easy one. It's just openline at vosim.com. I will try to connect you with the the uh, Umbrella Association for the liver, liver Disease, and you might get some more help or guidance at least from them. So you send me a note. I'll reply as quick as I can with at least those two pieces of information. Okay, Patty, thank you. I really appreciate it. 
I figure if anybody could help, it definitely would be you. Well, I'll do my best anyway. That much I can tell you. I'm really sorry to hear what's going on with you, but if we can help, whether it be just putting you in the right direction, I'll do what I can. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take good care. I'll look forward to getting that note, the email. Thank you, Patty. Have a good day. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Man, oh, man. So, you know, in reference to a recent caller about uh, their doctor being away for a couple of weeks, look, I I get it. When you're sick, you know, your emotions run wild, and everybody wants what they need, especially as it pertains to your health, as soon as possible. And the continuity of care conversation is also very real. I think just to throw it or, or to add to the conversation is when we hear from the various healthcare professionals, and sometimes it's a reference to money, but so more often it's, you know, they're burnt out. So how we try to, again, I'll use the word balance, is balance between having them available to you when we need them versus them being able to deal with some of their burnout and stress, whether it be with a vacation or whatever. How do we fit that bill? Because if it's, if we're losing healthcare professionals, all the way paramedics, whatever it is, because of stress and burnout and they're overworked and completely discontent, then that's something that we have to talk about as much as we have to talk about money, I think, right? What do you think? Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the federal health care announcement and the basics of recruiting doctors and whatever else you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one, Wayne, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Doing okay, I think. How are you doing? Not too badly. I'd like to offer a couple of comments on the current health care situation. I doubt very much if it's going to be helpful in correcting anything, but uh, I have a couple of thoughts that I'd like to share. Please go ahead. Uh, the first one, I guess, deals with the fact that the, the, the situation across the province didn't just happen overnight. And I'm not sure that we've given a lot of thought to the how this happened over time. Okay. And I think I think maybe we need to consider the administrative restructurings that have occurred in the province. Uh, for example, from 19. Uh, from 1990 until approximately 1996, the town of Bonavista had its own health care board and its own administration. It was called the Bonavista Peninsula Health Care Complex. And that local administration was responsible for all aspects of medical care in terms of both long-term care and the uh, acute care sector for the uh, greater part of the Bonavista Peninsula. Uh, in Just for, for my information, Wayne, so was that board responsible for day-to-day operations, hiring, all-inclusive, or was it just a, a wing of a regional health authority? No, no, it was, uh, we, we were our own independent organization. We did our own medical recruitment and retention. Uh, in any development in terms of things that that happened over time like the nursery home got expanded uh, in, in the hospital a, a palliative care suite was uh, was developed these things were the initiatives of the, the local board and administration 
somewhere, uh, and I'm not sure what the exact date was, I think it was around 1996, the first provincial health care restructuring occurred, and then we became part of uh, an entity called Peninsula's Healthcare, which was responsible then for health care from the tip of the Bonavista Peninsula to the tip of the Buren Peninsula. Uh, that saw another level of administration added, and you could see a gradual, you could see the focus on places, say, like Bonavista being eroded somewhat uh, because of the concentration for the larger area. Now, Peninsula's Healthcare stayed in existence until I think it was 2003 or four, when you had the next provincial restructuring, which was Eastern Health. Uh, and then you, you know the, the jurisdiction that that, that had. Mm -hmm. In the process of, of going from your local board administration to the greater entity of Eastern Health, uh, places like Bonavista lost out. Uh, there were other levels of management added. I think in some cases, things became more of a paper exercise than it did a concentration on the actual development of patient and resident care programs. I mean, for for one time, because I worked in, in the system, and for a spell, I was sick of airing what I call the uh, the five Ps philosophy, protocol, principles, practices, and procedures. And I think sometimes, you know, the greater the size of the system and the more remote uh, the senior administration gets from uh, the ground level, there's a greater concentration on, those, on, on the paper exercise than there is on the actual reality of, of developing programs. And I mean, now the provincial government uh, because some time back, I think it was the Minister of Finance, uh, uh, was in the media talking about one of the things they're going to do to save money is they're going to amalgamate all the boards now into one great uh, larger one for the whole province. And, I mean, we only have to look at some of the uh, problems that have come out of Eastern Health, whether it was the IT problem or whatever, to know that the larger you get, the less, the more out of touch you get with, with, with base programs. And, I, and I'm not sure that we might not be in it for a worse situation with respect to the provision of uh, health care services by the, by the provincial government through, say, one large, uh, one large board for the whole province. It does really feel, Wayne, doesn't doesn't it? Like when we had what you uh, describe in Bonavista versus what would be an absolutely unwieldy behemoth of just all healthcare delivery, whether it be day-to-day -day operations, hirings and firings, human resources, uh, everything under the one umbrella of the Department of Health Community Services or one health authority as a standalone entity. We might be creating a problem here. Now, obviously, we're going to find some efficiencies and some redundancies and maybe save a few bucks on the human resources front. But it does really sound like a lot to take on under one roof, doesn't it? Uh, yes, but can, can I give you a, a little short story sure, about go ahead. The, the first restructuring? 
When we move from uh, being the Bonavista Peninsula Healthcare Complex to, to migrating into Peninsula's healthcare, uh, we hired, I'll say we, the organization, hired a CEO from out of province. We hired a CEO from out of province that, to my knowledge at that time, had never ever worked in healthcare. And uh, within a little over a year, he was gone. My understanding was, and to put it delicately, uh, uh, he had to be replaced. Uh, there was a Newfoundlander hired uh, uh, who had knowledge of healthcare. It took him about a year and a half of intense and difficult effort to try to put Umpty Dumpty back together in, the, in this region. And he and he did. He got he got people. He got the people back on board. The, uh, the various uh, workers from top to bottom. Everybody had a measure of respect for him, and he worked hard to uh, to make the system work, which he did. Uh, at that time, you know, this guy was talking about, and and I think uh, other people across the country, they were talking about a paradigm shift in the workplace. And it's okay to talk about this re-engineering and paradigm shifts, but you know, and and the bottom level are two groups of people: those who need the services and those who provide the services. Which leads me to the second thing I'd like to offer a thought on, and that's medical recruitment and retention. Medical recruitment and retention were never easy. They weren't easy back in 1990. But in the, at the Bonavista Healthcare Complex and through the uh, appropriate level of MCP funding, we had four physicians on staff. Now, we didn't always have four. There were times when we were short one. But recruiting, the recruitment process that we undertook both in the country and outside the country, uh, usually meant that most of the time there were four physicians, which meant that if you wanted a medical appointment, for you, number one, you could have a family doctor. N number two, if, if you needed an appointment, you could get it within relatively short order. So none of the physicians were going to burn out in the sense that they were, they were constantly working. When the situation is gone. So you mentioned a paradigm shift, and you know that's a very scientific term about constructivism and cognitive psychology and all that kind of stuff. But do you not think that there is a need to transform the way the system operates, period? Because we spend more and more every single year in this province right across the country, we'll focus in on gaps, we'll focus in on having access to a healthcare professional when you're sick. Isn't it time that we rethink how healthcare works? Because healthcare outcomes just don't line up with healthcare spends. Well, you know, uh, the mayor of our community was in the media recently, and one of the things he spoke about was uh, uh, needed to be said, and that is, you know, how much money does it take to fly a doctor in for less than a week from British Columbia to pay his expenses, to pay his salary, to keep him here and fly him back for less than a week's coverage? So, I mean, you know, if you're looking at bang for your buck, that's certainly not it. But with respect to recruitment and retention, you know, you have to realize 
that doctors are, are human beings like the people who need their help. Oh, absolutely. They need to they need to have a reasonable work schedule. They need to be welcomed into into the community. Uh, I, I don't know how to say this other than this way. Back around 1991 or 92, uh, the Mon Medical School had what we used to call out in the uh, in the organizations a, a job a job fair. It was an opportunity for the organizations to, to go to the Mon Medical School, uh, present themselves as organizations with the hope of attracting um, new graduates to, to come to your area and, and to work. And I remember at the time the Minister of Health was a gentleman by the name of Chris Decker. And he gave the opening address in, in the large lecture theater of, uh, of Mon Medical School. And he talked about what was what was needed to be done and what you needed to do to try and retain your physicians once you have them in the community. And when he was finished, my boss looked at me and he said, Wayne, did you send in uh, our manual on what we do for retention? Because everything he talked about, we were doing plus more. Uh, I, I within the past six months, I, I had to visit Bonavista Hospital myself, and I I encountered a staff member there <clears throat> who said to me, because they were talking about the the physician shortage and the situation at the hospital as well, and uh, the individual said to me, I, I was working uh, uh, one night. And uh, I walked out through the uh, the main waiting area, and there was an individual there looking around kind of like they were lost. Uh, so they asked them, you know, is there something I can do for you? And they said, well, I'm doctor such and such, and I'm here to work for a particular period. That doctor came into Banvesta, walked into an hospital, nobody met them. They didn't know where they were supposed to start work the next day. There was no accommodations arranged for them. Uh, and and this, this individual uh, staff member at the hospital got all of maintenance and got a residence open, which I don't even think the heat was turned on, and uh, got the person in somewhere for the night. Now, if that's the way we're going to try and retain physicians, you know, that's not not, not going to work. It doesn't make I any mean, sense. It's not like a new high school student, new to a new city or a new school. That's ridiculous. That's the first time I've ever heard that type of story. Just because of the time on the clock, we're going to have to leave this very shortly. But, you know, the removal of your board, as you describe it, reminds me of all of the regional economic development boards, the red boards that all went by the wayside, yes. too, which I don't think was helpful either. So, Wayne, I'll give you the, uh, the last uh, thoughts here. Go ahead. Uh no, I just want to say with respect to uh, the provincial thinking and, and uh, getting value for your money in terms of health care delivery. I mean, years ago, I, I had a lot of conversation with uh, physicians through the process I was involved with them in. And a number of them said to me repeatedly that, Wayne, look, the amount of trauma and serious disease that's coming through the Bonavesta Hospital is unreal. And that's the same thing that's occurring today, you know. And uh, if if you if the provincial government thinks that you know just ambulancing everybody off to Clarenville 
is going to solve the problem. I mean, it's not going to work. And it's creating, uh, it's creating an environment of fear and uncertainty in, in, in our local environment, which is unhealthy in itself. It's making people sick. And uh, Yes, because you know, sick with worry uh, is real sick. Our mayor addressed the fact that, you know, uh, he was kind of tired of uh, hearing the hospitals being classed as, as A and B with the, with the different salary benefits available to, to physicians. I mean, there are some ways, I think you're right, the whole system needs to be retaught. But somewhere along the line, when, when you look at the amount of trauma that's going through an hospital like Bonavista, and when you look at... Uh, According to the last census, a population of approximately 3,300 people, I think, uh, 30 percent uh, of which plus are, are, are senior citizens. You know, uh, you you can't just drag everybody off to GB Cross in Clarenville and say you're providing health care. You know, when you've got the facility here, they can do it. But anyway. You know, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to offer these thoughts, and I, I know there's no easy way out of the system. No, there isn't, but I certainly appreciate the time and some of the historical context in your region. Thanks for this, Wayne. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Good day to you. Same to you, sir. Bye-bye. Uh, uh, there you go. Good one. Uh, let's take a break. For those of you in the queue, stay right there. We're coming right back. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Oh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Morning, Rob. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's uh, Thursday morning, so it's a good Thursday morning. It is. Not a bad day out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to get into somewhat of the health care, not, not a big lot of it, but... Uh, you know, like like you and me, we've lived across the, the country. You've been out in Alberta and stuff like that and here and that. But what I find most with the doctors is that, you know, they're trying to get people in and out. They're trying to look after people, but they're stressed out and stuff like that. But all they want to do is push pills. And I've got firsthand experience on that, you know, um, I don't have a family doctor. I haven't had a family doctor in probably 30 years now. But um, I, I, I find that the doctors nowadays want to conform to the pharmacy, which is controlled by the government, and just, you know, what type of pill do you want? And that's, that's exact words said to me by doctors. What type of pill do I want for what pain do I have? Well, first things first, some doctors go right to the prescription pad. I mean, we know it because even the, the college and or the medical association has told us that we have the overprescribing of a lot of drugs. One that was really making headlines was antibiotics, for instance. You know, we actually had doctors provi- uh, prescribing antibiotics for things that antibiotics aren't for. So the prescription pad is an easy way out, but it's not always the required treatment. And it's not me saying that. The medical association acknowledges that. Yeah, and and see, and that's that's something that hasn't been put out there now. Yes, you know, we're trying to get doctors in and stuff like that. Like I'm on the waiting list, like you were. Um, you know, like I said, I, I've been to the Monday Pond uh, clinic there, and they were they were great there and everything like that. You know, got a few tests done and stuff like that. Um, but I, I'm just all across the country. 
It's not only here in Newfoundland, but it's in, you know, Ontario, Alberta, everywhere. You go in there, the first thing a doctor is going to say to you when you say you have an ailment, you got back pain, you got knee pain, you got stuff, what type of drugs do you want? And I think that's got to be addressed big time, too. Yeah, well, you know, we're armed with so much information, for better or worse. We go to, or we sit down, we watch television, and all of a sudden an ad pops up for this pill or that pill. And basically, it's a whole bunch of disclaimers and uh, risks associated. But between that and, you know, going on the Internet and going to WebMD, we've got ourselves diagnosed before we go into a doctor's office. And we're going, many people go in armed with demanding that they get this drug or that drug. And I guess some doctors get simply worn out with trying to fight back against those types of things that they write the script. Now, how common that is, I don't really know, but I'm sure it happens. Oh, I'm, I, it's quite common. It's quite common. Like I said, you know, I've been from, you know, St. John's here to Ontario through to Alberta, Fort McMurray and everything like that. And um, I tell you, it's all the same. It's it's the first thing they want to do is pull out that script pad and say, okay, well, what type of drug do you want? Do you want Oxy? Do you want this? Do you want Tylenol-3? Do you want... And, it, and it's disgusting, really. Because they they, they, they don't even want to know what your real ailment is they don't want to know you yeah I, and again i don't know how prevalent it is but i know it happens and if it happens five percent of the time that's five percent of the time too much or too many oh absolutely and and you know i just wanted to throw that out there it's like you know i've heard a few callers today and you know with medication and stuff like that and you know i i I just don't know what to say. It's just there's too much prescription drugs being put out there and people trying to help themselves a little bit more with more. I'm not a holistic type of guy or anything like that, but you can we can do stuff more at home than we can do with prescription drugs. Yeah, there's options. Now, I mean, there's going to be plenty of elements where a prescription is absolutely part of treatment, but it doesn't have to mean it's the only approach and or the approach that's chosen before any other uh, opportunities are evaluated. No, no, agreed. And, you know, but uh, it's just my, you know, what I've gone through through the last 30 years or whatever like that, traveling across the country and going to never really having a family doctor. But all they want to do is just want to know what type of drug you want. So, like, how much are the pharmacies, not so much the local pharmacies or anything like that, but the pharmaceutical companies paying extra into the into the doctors to promote their drugs? Well, it's a thing. I mean, we know we have representatives of the various pharmaceutical companies that that's their job. They go around and visit the doctors to prescribe their new and best and greatest uh pharmaceutical options so yeah how that bleeds into the doctor's psyche i really don't know i guess we'd have to ask the doctors one by one yeah you know and that's the other thing like you said you know you said just a little earlier like look at all the side effects on these new drugs that's coming like you know like you got a a a one minute commercial and 45 seconds of it is all disclaimer saying this may happen to you Hmm. it's disgusting yeah, and at the exact same time, some of the other treatments uh, and vaccinations associated with the pandemic, of course, we treat those a little differently in some social circles. Uh, I appreciate this this morning, Rob. Would you, anything else you'd like to say? No, no, that's it for today. I won't waste any more of your time. Thank it's you It's not a waste much. at all. I'm glad you called.
Okay, thanks. Thanks, Rob. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. You too. Uh, let's take a break. We'll go back. Pat's right there to talk about the most recent federal health care announcement. Of course, $196 billion over 10 years, $46 billion of which is an increase in the health care transfer dollar. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Pat, you're on the air. Hey, hello. Hello. Is this me on the air? This is you on the air. Okay, super. And a pleasant morning to you, sir. The same to you, Pat. I was uh, Ray. Uh, when you said Pat, it threw me off. My name is Ray. Oh, I'm sorry. It says Pat on my screen. I apologize, Ray. Welcome to the show. Not at all. But in the meantime, like, there's $100 million uh, earmarked for this province with the health care, as we all know. Now, are we going to have uh, to have an inquiry down the road to find out where half of that money went? Or is it going to get to the places where it's needed? You, you know, $100 million sounds like an awful lot of money, but when you got Eastern Health, Western Health, and uh, who knows however many more health departments there is, and you got in administrators in, in uh, all the areas, of course, who needs to be taken care of. But actually, how much is this going to get down to where it's needed to most? Well, that's an excellent question. I mean, how they spend new money is going to be a key. And like I mentioned off the top, Ray, you know, to try to deal with the needs and the gaps or the shortages today, what does that do to try to reduce health care costs in the future? Probably not a whole, whole lot. So I don't know how they're going to spend it. We tried to get some indication from Minister Osborne yesterday as to how they're going to focus this new money coming in the door. Not really sure we got much information on that front from him. But just to go back to your earlier comment about an audit or an inquiry, into where what money went. What money were you talking about then, sir? Well, here we had one instance where the Church of Falls, for example, uh, it cannot find a lot of the money that was designated for that job. I mean, it went five or six or seven billion dollars over budget. You know, it went out the door someplace, and time and time again, we hear tell of. Uh, money that was earmarked for one place uh, not ending up with 100% of it spent on that particular project. But um, it would be nice to see that this gets put in to the place where it's supposed to belong and not get uh, put out into some other areas like roads and uh, holidays and trips. And, you know, it's a, we got quite a mess on the go all over the place. There's corruption everywhere you look. And, you know, if I were in a place with a bunch of money coming through, would I be tempted to go on a holiday and, and spend a few thousand bucks? And, you know, I mean, somebody has to overlook it and see what's happening proper and see that it gets to where it's supposed to be going. Hopefully. Uh. So... Okay, so uh, just a couple of things there. You know, the issue with corruption or some of the things that we did glean from the LeBlanc inquiry regarding Muskrat Falls is even just some fundamental decisions that were made. For instance, the number of the dozens or hundreds of subcontractors, consultants that were brought on with exorbitant fees being paid versus bringing them on to as employees full-time for the length of the project. So no question, there was money spent out the door that needn't have gone. And exactly who may indeed have been on the receiving end of any type of corruption, I don't know. We have been told, and have no idea the status, that some files were passed off to the RNC. Whether or not there's ever been one iota of investigation or anything's ever going to happen, I don't know. But 
I do think we learned a lot about the Muskrat fall spending at that inquiry. Do you? I do believe that we did, but in the meantime, I'm sure there's things going to happen over and over and over again. No matter what we learn from one project, uh, it seems like um, it gets into everything, you know, and uh, uh, we have nursing shortages. We got nurses here trying to make a go on a skimpy income uh, that did not keep up with the times. And, uh, like, as we can see, our health system went in shambles. When you got uh, plumbers, electricians, uh, and carpenters and the like making uh, almost twice as much as a nurse is making, like, those people got to live, too, eh? Uh, You know, we've got uh, licensed practical nurses now traveling to other provinces, getting double the money that they're getting here and getting housed at the same place in other provinces where if they were treated half decent here, there'd be no need of them traveling away. You know, I mean, I haven't got the answer to any of it. Uh, I'm sure there's quite a bit out there for people to deal with. And me, I don't have uh, the knowledge to uh, put a package together for any of this kind of stuff. But in the meantime, like, uh, uh, we elect our officials to get in to look after what's going on because the local uh, ordinary man don't have time to get into politics of today and what's going on. They just hire politicians and hope for the best. And that is my comment. And I wish you all to have a good day. And let's see what happens. I'm glad you called. Thank you very much, Ray. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, there's still some big questions on how some of that money got spent at Muskrat Falls. No doubt about it. We're never able to get an update as to whether or not any file that may or may not have been passed over to the IRC has seen any action. I don't know. But even something as fundamental as the independent contractors and the consultants that were brought on and some of the money spent on those individuals or companies was huge. Was it necessary? For the vast majority of it, probably not. Uh, where am I going here? Dave, you want to flash me a line you want to go? Line one? Okay. Line one. Sheila, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How you doing? Uh, not too bad. Kind of cold here on the picket line this morning. What picket line are you on? In mainland. Okay. Still fighting to keep the windmills off the peninsula. I just wanted to say a few words here. I heard of Mr. Risley was on a few uh, a few radio shows, and he keeps coming up with the same handful of people saying there's only a select few that don't want to, the turbines in our area. But I don't know if he recalls there was a poll taken, I think it was in October, where 84% of the peninsula was against the windmills. And when he says there were there was people coming out to speak with the people on the peninsula once and twice a week, we haven't seen anyone who came to speak with any one of us about these windmills. Now, I don't know if, if they think Newfoundland is becoming a communist province. Communist? When they send a SWAT, yeah, because to me, they sent out a SWAT team to come here on our picket line to intimidate us, a tactical team. Did anybody do know. anything? Did anybody touch anybody? Anyone get removed or anything happen? Nobody got removed. No, but we, 
they just try to intimidate us. And then they leave when we say they can't pass through. So I, we don't understand what that's all about. And we're wondering, where is our government to protect the people? And how can Risley say a handful of people don't want them here when 85% say they don't want them here? How valid do you think anyone should accept, whether it be Mr. Risley's poll numbers and or your own, your own poll numbers at face value? For instance, do you think there's the possibility that if you go to someone's door and tell them that you're opposed to the project and ask them if they're also opposed to the project and they just simply say yes because that's what you want to hear, do you think some of that influence may have been brought to bear here? I, I don't think so. I don't, th- I, don't, I don't think Mr. Riley, Mr. Risley understands that the people on the peninsula have a mind of their own and they're not easily coerced into making an opinion. Because it seems to me that's what he's saying. It's, he's saying that, yes, the people of the peninsula are being coerced, they're being, made to- they're being told what to say. I don't think that's right. I don't think I could go to someone and, and try to make them change their mind, because I tell you, no one could make me change my mind. What is it about this project specifically that you're protesting against? Like, what's the reason why you're so vehemently opposed? Just curious. We just don't want the windmills on the peninsula. Why? We don't want our water to be ruined. We don't want our, we don't want our wildlife habitat to be destroyed. We don't want our freedoms gone. What freedoms would you lose? Well, can you, if I own a piece of land, Mm-hmm. Okay, for example, if I own a piece of land and I don't want anyone on my property, it's in my name. I don't want anyone on my property. It's my right to keep them off. So now Mr. Risley is going to lease the land from Crown Lands. Once that land is leased, can people honestly say, or can he honestly say that we will not, we'll be allowed to travel the way we travel on these mountains? Has someone told you you will not be able to? Well, this is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm hearing. So once something belongs to someone, can you trespass? Will they allow you to trespass? Well, he's simply leasing land. He wouldn't have full ownership. I would imagine there'd be safety buffers from not getting too close to a turbine. But, uh, and even there was thoughts of expropriating people's homes and what have you. I asked uh, John Risley directly about that. He said there is zero intention. And I would imagine that has to be uh, addressed by the provincial government in any leasing of Crown land for what he will uh, will be able to and not able to do, whether it be expropriation and or keep people from being able to traverse in one part of the province or another. So, yeah, the province absolutely has to negotiate something that's reasonable and respectful to the folks in the region if it gets the green light, 100%. Exactly. So why hasn't our, our ministers come out and spoke with, I'm sorry, speak with us to let us know all these things? I was asked by uh, uh, Brendan Mitchell two days ago if anybody of our ministers came out and spoke with us to hear our concerns. And you know, this is what I told him. You, like everybody else, are hiding behind the microphone. No one is coming out to speak with us to let us know exactly what's going on here. I also asked Mr. Brent, uh, Mr. Mitchell, why don't they take the windmills, put them in Flat Bay, where p- apparently they say people want them. He said, yes, what a good idea. Why don't they do that? Take it off the peninsula, put it somewhere else. So I, I don't understand. Like, it seems as though we're getting a runaround here. We don't know. They're they're saying this and they're saying that, 
But no one is speaking to us and telling us, yes, this is what is right and this is what's wrong. We're not hearing anything about it. So, and look, just correct me if I'm wrong, but what you just said there is you're happy enough if it's in someone else's area, but you just don't want it in yours. If people want it in their area, let them put it there. That's what I'm saying. We don't want it on the Port of Port Peninsula. So is it, is it fair to say that the basic pushback is simple as not in my backyard? Exactly. Hmm. Okay. Exactly. And that's how we feel. And so you're looking for Minister Parsons to speak to your concerns uh, if you're referring to the Minister of the Crown. I guess that's what you're, you mean, is it? Exactly, yes. Okay. Anything else quickly, Sheila, because I'm a bit late for the news. Go right ahead. Final no, thoughts. No, 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 I'm good. I just wanted to just have a few words to say this morning. Because you know what? We're getting kind of frustrated out here. No doubt. I appreciate Thanks. the time. Stay in touch. I will. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sheila. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. It is time for the news. But Mike's there to talk about, I guess, in reference to a caller recently talking about uh, doctors and the prescription pad. And then Ryan's got to throw around a bouquet. We'll find out what that's about. And then we're talking about the clinic at Whitburn, which I think has been closed for almost seven months now. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Ryan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How are you doing? I'm not doing too bad. Um, I want to throw a little bouquet this morning. Fire away. We had uh, some tense moments in Gander yesterday when we got the call that our son's school was being evacuated uh, due to a threat. Um and I just want to throw a bouquet to the staff here who has kept the line of communication open with parents, uh, evacuated the kids safely to the neighboring school. Uh, I can't say enough about the staff in, in all the schools here that I've had kids go right on up through. And uh, the staff that we have at St. Paul's Intermediate and Gander Academy and Gander Collegiate uh, are barring on the best in the, in the province, I would say. Ryan, can you tell us anything about the threat? I... Patty, there's a lot of rumors, so I wouldn't want to... Okay, fair enough. That, that's good. I wouldn't good. want to say anything on it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I heard the story, and there's a reason I didn't speak about it off the top of the show is because I didn't know what to say, because I don't even know exactly what we're talking about, whether it was a bomb threat or someone had a weapon in the school, or, like, I, ha I didn't really know what was going on, so I kind of left it out. But, I mean, the the immediate fear that sweeps through the student body and the teachers, administrators, and, of course, the parents or caregivers at home is quick. So to know that they dealt with it in a fashion that uh, causes you to bring this bouquet for this morning is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, and they even last night after you know the kids were home and you know we kind of debriefed with the kids. We got a call from the school, you know, just touching base and and offering up any counseling services that might have been needed today. So again, hats off to the incredible staff that they have there. Did they go into a secure mode or lockdown or anything like that? Uh, it was straight evacuation, straight to the neighboring school. Man, oh man. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be nice to know a little bit more. Do you think, like, maybe that's just my nature is that I'd like to have more info just about on everything in the world. Do you think that would be helpful for whether or not it be the principal or law enforcement to give people an idea of exactly the threat that was being dealt with yesterday? Or is that sort of irrelevant? I don't know because I haven't been in that position. Yeah, curiosity uh, would get me to, to say that, you know, it'd be nice to know, but I, I would like for them, you know, because there's so many rumors. So maybe let's, once we have an investigation done, let's come up with a full answer and explain, you know, 
you know, in maybe not so much detail, but kind of give a, a broad response to what, what what had happened. Yeah, because rumors become facts very quickly in some people's minds, which is then hard to turn back the clock on it. Uh, you, you talk about debriefing your children. Once again, if it's too personal, then tell me to uh, knock it off. But how does that sound in your house? Like what kind of, kind of conversations and how did your children react? Um, well, so... And just the emotional part of it. Like, he, he was fine when I picked him up. He was very talkative. Uh, when he got home and got safe, he, there were some tears. Uh, you know, he, he kind of held it together until he got home and safe and in his own home. Um, and then, you know, you hear talk of what happened in Laval as well yesterday. So it was, Oh, boy. Yeah, so safe to say we, we held our kids pretty tight last night. No doubt you did, and I'm glad it worked out the way it has. And just so folks uh, who maybe did not see the news or don't really know what to say about it either, I didn't bring up the Laval issue off the top because it's almost too difficult to even think about, especially as a parent. And this is the story where someone, by the looks of it or the sounds of the charges anyway, purposefully drove a bus into a daycare. Two children were killed. Four more, I believe, were injured. It's just beyond sad. It's devastating. I had to turn it off when I saw it on the news yesterday. It's just too much. It's absolutely heartbreaking, Patty, yeah. It is, Ryan. Uh, thank you for this, and I'm sure the bouquet will be appreciated uh, to those who made a bad situation as best possible yesterday. Right on. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Ryan. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That story in Laval, Quebec, oh, man, I mean, a bunch of charges been laid, first-degree murder, two, case, two counts of first-degree murder, and a bunch of other charges. Man, oh, man. Let's go to line number five. Andrew, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, several months ago, I uh, I called in first when this happened and voiced our concern in this area about our clinic, and uh, my concerns turned out to be well founded uh, because here we find ourselves now still without 24-hour emergency care at the clinic, and actually right now we have no emergency care, and uh, you know we're not getting satisfaction from from our, our our member or the health minister in fact we had a meeting scheduled with him yesterday uh, the town of Norman's Cove Long Cove arranged a meeting and invited all the surrounding communities and towns to to participate and it got cancelled early in the morning yesterday but in fact the minister had time to to come on your show but yet he didn't have uh, 20 or 30 minutes to hear our concerns and uh, we still don't have a, a date set for the, for another meeting yet. Um, the the clinic itself, uh, five of our nurses from the clinic are in Placentia Clinic right now, and four nurses there are from that clinic. So our our nurses have been taken out of Whitburn to go to Placentia, and uh, and we've lost our doctors in Whitburn because. Uh, one doctor was asked to go to a collaborative clinic, uh, and he was asked and 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 went. And uh, uh, the lab closed in Whitburn, so Whitburn is completely without any services. And uh, and again, no no answers. And this clinic serves 20,000 people. Um, so we we've taken upon ourselves a group of people in the community, uh, the Lions clubs and everything else. Uh, there's petitions circulating around in stores. We encourage residents to sign the petitions. And there's going to be a public protest at, uh, at Whitburn on February 18th at 1 p.m. And we want as many people from our area to get out to that. 
Fair enough. I mean, I think we're going on seven months here. It's been dragging on. And I, what would be, I suppose, even more frustration added to this fire is that when we get the updates weekly, is that, well, the clinic in Whitburn will be closed for another week. Well, it's been yeah. every week for seven months. And, uh, you know, it's... it's it's like the, a few callers back, uh, you know, I was I was listening to were saying, uh, there's there's a problem with transparency and openness in our government. Uh, it's like a quote that Nancy Pelosi used there on CNN uh, last night or uh, the night before. She said, uh, Abraham Lincoln's famous quote, with public sentiment, nothing can fail, but without it, nothing can succeed. And sometimes I think, you know, our government kind of leaves us partly in the dark because they know there's going to be uh, protests or outrage over certain issues. And that's not a good thing to do. You, you want to be open and transparent. You're not going to have everyone on board with something, but at least be open and transparent and go with what the majority wants. Well, of course, the majority in any community would want what they had in the past, whether it be clinical or laboratory services, because I guess for the obvious reasons. Andrew, I appreciate the time. Would you like to say anything else? Yes. One, one thing more I'd like to raise is, for instance, this, you know, building a new hospital to replace St. Clair's. Yep. Again, that was another, uh, another you know, false misleading statement that saying that the, the hospital was 100 years old. Yes, it was founded 100 years ago, but the, the vast majority of that building was built in the 70s, which is not an old hospital by, you know, North American standards. And what's the good of building a new hospital when we don't have staff? It's like buying, a, it's buying tires for your car without even owning a car. It's silly. Yeah, but I mean, of course, the staff that's already working there would be the staff working in the new replacement, though, right? Yes, but they don't have enough staff. There's beds closed. There's, you know, it's 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 a silly, it's a silly uh, solution to, you know, when we have a staffing problem across the province, right? I think, in my mind. Yeah, I, I mean, if anyone's been to St. Clair's in the recent past, there's definitely, I don't know if it needs to be done today or in 2024, but sometime in the near future, it does need to be replaced. I mean, oh, just like oh, the Waterford needs to be replaced. Let's get, let's get all the hospitals filled with, with staff before we worry about replacing infrastructure, <laughs> right? Appreciate the time, Andrew. Thanks for this. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Okay, you? I'm pretty good. Look, uh, I've been listening to your show for a long time. And, uh, you know, this stuff about the windmills. Now, you know way more. Kids on grade six know way more about that than I do. But I'm, I'm going to tell you, Patty. Her Majesty's Royal Complainers in the House have convinced me that uh, that this Mitchell Regile is should be put in jail. And... Uh, then you got this this person who was on the show a couple of minutes ago talking about, oh, we should be building the new um, St. Clair's Mercy Hospital. Well, you know, the very same people who are complaining about the windmills or the hospital or whatever, they should realize that it's going to be the windmills and the other projects either passed by Mr. Fury or uh, passed by the leader of the opposition. That poor fellow never is never happy about anything. Now, these projects are going to pay for the roads, for the hospitals, 
for the schools and everything else they're complaining about. Well, I think that's debatable because we don't know what they're going to pay because there's not a whole lot of uh, financial upside inside of these projects as far as I can tell. Now, it's yet to be understood what a royalty might look like or exactly how many jobs will be created. But, you know, unlike a lot of other projects, say a mine or something, we understand how that works. So I think that's some of the pushback here is that there's a lot of unknowns regarding green hydrogen because we've never done it. There's a lot of unknowns regarding wind turbines because there's only a handful of wind turbines on the island, period. So this just kind of comes out of nowhere for a lot of people and I'm going to throw this out there I think there's an awful lot of pushback about World Energy GH2 simply because of John Risley I mean there's a lot of baggage that I think he would admit and he understands uh, that people would consider and uh, some of his past dealings people maybe have a sour taste in their mouth so it feels like it's as much about Risley as it is about wind turbines in addition to that you know there's 31 proposals no one's mentioned anything about anything but World Energy GH2 so there's work going on in the Port of Argentia. It's certainly got not getting any bad commentary. Uh, any other proposal for whatever purpose, we haven't heard a peep about it. It's all about World Energy GH2, which leads me to believe it's as much about Risley as it is about anything else. Well, I don't know. Uh, people are complaining. I mean, I, 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 I really get upset. Like, this thing about uh, out in Cornerbrook there a couple of years or last year about the guy who wanted to put in a crematorium. And that created so much problems for the people in Cornerbrook. I don't know if the guy sold his funeral home or not. But I, I'm pretty sick and tired of people coming on and all they're doing is complaining. And I think when this windmill thing gets canceled and stuff like that, then they'll be on blaming Mr. Fury for not coming through on his promises. So I thought I'd phone in on that this morning and complain myself. So thanks a lot. It's always my favorite, Brian, when people complain about complaining. <laughs> okay. Appreciate the time. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, Dave, did you say one here next? Okay, let's go to line number one. Lucy, you're on the air. Oh, hi there. Um, Patty, I'd just like to say I really enjoy your show. I think it's very informational, and uh, you do a great job, first Thanks. of all, starting off. Appreciate it. I love your show. Um, so basically, I just wanted to uh, weigh in here on on the windmills. Um, basically, you were saying about the, uh, the environmental assessment. So uh, the, same, the same company is going to be doing the assessment. Is that correct? The environmental assessment? Well, I imagine they don't have the expertise in-house to do it, but someone in that world will be doing it. I don't think as a whole it's a vastly different process than other environmental assessments because, and we've asked the minister about this, and then in this case be Minister Davis, so an assessment will be done, be evaluated, and questions asked or clarification requested by the government until they come down to something they can live with. So how that works, I've never been in that world or in those rooms, but that's the basics of environmental assessments as far as I can tell. So, so the public will have access to this environmental assessment when it's released, is that correct? We absolutely should. Every step of the way, from application onwards, there's updates on the government website about where the application is, whether it be for an access road or a mine or a mine expansion or logging or whatever. So, yes, we, sh- we should be able to get our hands on it, and we've been told we will. Okay, perfect. Now, the other, the other question uh, I, I was looking at, 
Uh, I have a friend of mine who knows a little bit about these windmills. I, me, personally, I don't know much about it. I've been just researching a little bit um, since it's going to be affecting our uh, our island and our lands. Um, basically, um, uh, the sound, uh, some people were saying that, that you wouldn't be able to hear it, but I don't know. I've heard that there's a low frequency that could be affecting your hearing. I, I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure about that. But the one main thing I wanted to double-check was... The spraying of the lands, like I was told that in order to put the windmills there, they have to spray all of the circumference of the area with these chemicals to stop the trees from growing up. There's not allowed to be one bush, one tree, one anything on all the circumference of the land where these windmills are going. I'm not sure if that is correct, but if it is, it's certainly a concern. It, it certainly is, if it is correct. I don't know for sure what the circumstances are there. We used to spray all sorts of stuff, for instance, on the side of the road to control the alders from growing in, as opposed to cutting them back when required. We've just gone in and sprayed a bunch of stuff when we've stopped that for the most part. But yeah, that's something that I'd, re- I'd like to know more about, Lucy, because I don't know. Yes, because, I mean, if if they have to spray all this, and our, it's our trees, it's our breathing, it's our air, it's our, you know, and and our wildlife, like all these trees, the, the, the moose and, and the birds and everything, that's a very big concern because, I mean, Newfoundland is known for its land and its trees and its beautiful breathing air. We've yeah. got a lot of pristine land in the province. I'm lucky to have it. Um, so I'll find out more about the spray. I don't. I just don't know the answer to that question, but I'll try to find out as best I can. And the issue regarding noise pollution, I haven't been close enough to wind turbines to know what they sound like. But leaders, municipal leaders in the area did indeed take a fact-finding mission to Ontario to examine a bunch of things, to have a look at it in operation, and to talk about what kind of noise, what sort of impact that would have. They came back saying that their concerns regarding noise were, were, not, were no longer there. So... They're the ones who experienced it, so I'll let their, their no words come. They were no longer there because it didn't affect them um, in the int- like right away. You know, I don't know. I've heard that these sound waves, um, I don't know, like even one kilometer, I heard that they're supposed to be further than one kilometer, but apparently the, the wa- waves, the sound waves apparently affect your hearing over time, like slowly. You know, you can't hear it, but I've, I've heard that these waves do, if you're so, you know, in a vicinity, really affect yeah, for clarification, it wasn't simply about their one hour, two hours, five days exposed to it. it was yeah. the work that was done by the governments there regarding long-term noise pollution and impact on. So they spoke to two of those things, as far as I can remember. I Also, someone who told me that there is massive issues with that, all I said to him is, if you can give me something I can read so I yeah. can better understand it, then we can speak to it in a bit more informed fashion. Now, I have a million things on my plate, so I haven't done much research on long-term noise pollution regarding wind mm-hmm. turbines, but I suppose I'll add that to the list with, along with the chemicals that the points you're making here this morning. I really appreciate that, Patty, and, and you do a great job for all of us here in Newfoundland, and, and thank, we're so thankful to have you. Well, I appreciate your uh, kind words and your time, Lucy. Thank you. Okay, thank you Take very care. much. All right, bye-bye. Dave, you want me to take this on three? All right, he's not listening. Yeah? yeah? Mike, you're on the air. All right, my buddy. Mike, you're on. How are you doing, my buddies? Mike, uh, uh, the comment on the hospital, my buddy, and all the new hospitals and all that. I just got released from hospital, but I went in for a surgery with my bladder, and I had to get a big stone out. Uh, uh, thank you to Dr. Hogan. It was a good surgery, boy, but I, mean, I was in a lot of pain when I came home, and I, I really believe they released me, like, way too early. 
They all uh, bleeding profusely for 10 days, agony pain, and doctors over the phone saying, you know, they suspected. And I guess they got laser eyes through the phone, which, you know, I didn't really care for. But uh, as for St. Clair's, my buddy, like the nurses and all that, they 100% deserve a new hospital. And Newfoundland can certainly find some land to do it on. I really believe that. And uh, money-wise, like, uh, you know, like all these little drug stores and all that opening up, like THC and taxes and all that. They, they, they got the, 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 who's making all the money off of that? We, the, we all know who's making the money. And, uh, you know what I mean? The nurses at the St. Clair's down there are unreal. I uh, love them to death. You talk about sending out of UK, I'd send them out every flower shop in the world. <laughs> so are you, are, are you on the mend, Mike? Quickly before I have to go, it's 12.02. What's that? Are you on the mend? You feeling better? Oh, I'm home. I got home yesterday. I got all the pain and subsided. They took care of me. Within a day and a half down there, I was feeling like a million bucks. Now, I'll be honest with you, Patty. I'm a recovering addict myself. So I got a high tolerance to the, to the painkillers. And none of them would work. Only thing okay. that helped me was my medicine from my that got me off of that stuff, right? And that's 13 years ago. And uh, you know what I mean? When I was over to the health science, they were treating me like like I was still an addict. And when I get to St. Clair's, and, and I tell them, like, I need my medication the same as I need my pre- prescription pills, right. they totally understood. They took care of it immediately. And they were drove off their feet tripping over each other. Well, they're certainly a busy crowd. I wish we had more time, Mike, but hopefully you recover uh, speedily, and I appreciate this this morning. We're late for the 12 o'clock news. Stay in touch. Not a problem, buddy. Thank you for your time. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Good show. Uh, we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye. <laughs>